0: Okay, I think we're live. Um, Yeah, good morning to everybody um, both in person here in Philly as well as on the live stream. This is the October 7th, 2023 edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, And yeah, I feel like a lot has happened in the past week, um, like both domestically as well as internationally. And it just feels like world events are accelerating. I don't know, at least that's what it felt like for me in the past week, especially with um, like what's happening in Congress. um, And and other developments that have been going on, especially with the presidential race and the various candidates. Um, But yeah, so today we're going to talk about basically return to the domestic political crisis and situation and in particular talk about, um, whether the two parties of the state, the Democrats and Republicans, are on the verge of collapse. Um, We're also going to talk about, you know, these 2024 presidential candidates. Um, And then, so moving on from there, we're going to turn to James Baldwin. And I think this is also laying some of the groundwork for the year of Baldwin next year. Um, But yeah, Serafina is going to talk about um, an approach to reading Baldwin's novels. And then we're also gonna have um, people from the Lotus Group, which is reading Baldwin right now at at UPenn, um, talk about kind of their approach, their experiences, and what we can learn from that for the upcoming year of Baldwin. And then I think if we have time, um, we might also talk about uh, Putin's speech and appearance at (sighs) an event called the Valdai Club, um, which is like, I think an annual forum that is held in Russia every year. in which people from like different countries, like not just journalists, but also academics, intellectuals, interested people can come and kind of engage with the Russian leadership. And there was a very interesting um, discussion around civilization and how Russia conceptualizes civilization right now, but also how we kind of view that through the lens of Du Bois and Robeson who are also theorists of civilization. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to get to. Um, but yeah, I'll turn it over to Doc for the domestic political situation. Yeah, thanks
1: a lot, Jerry. Good morning to everybody. Uh, certainly, let just say to me, just like you said, Jerry, a lot went on this week. You can almost say that about every week. Uh, events have sped up and um, the 2024 election uh, at this point by the Trump election has already begun, Uh, perhaps it began a month and a half ago, so we're well into that race. Um, There there is no Republican uh, running that will challenge Trump and the threat of imprisoning him only makes him stronger and toughens the opposition of a good part of the electorate uh, to what uh, the government is pursuing and people see it as an uh, unjust and uh, in fact an attempt to weaken the major opponent of biden now the question is will biden even run and um, increasingly in the mainstream media commentators are bringing it into question whether he should run whether he can run, and if he does run, can he defeat Trump? Now, in all of the discussion, there is a missing uh, set of assumptions. Uh, Everybody, or at least the mainstream media, is assuming that uh, this is a Democrat, versus Republican election. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's because they frame it that way that they cannot understand uh, fully what this Trump phenomenon represents. They can't understand it. Uh, what you have is the Democratic Party, which is the uh, Unquestionably, the party of the richest, most powerful, of uh, uh, most war-oriented—I uh, um, don't know what else to say—most anti-working-class, mm-hmm. anti-lower-middle-class mm-hmm. forces in the country. <coughs> Let me just kind of indicate how tectonic this shift in the Democratic Party is. The Democratic Party under Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal and the Great Depression did become the party of working people, especially in the 1930s. And the New Deal was a wide, who uh, a set of policies uh, uh, instituted to address the catastrophic collapse of world capitalism. That is what the Great Depression was, the collapse of the world economic system, which included at that time not just the main capitalist countries of Europe, but all of the world because they colonized most of the world. Uh, But Franklin Roosevelt uh, became uh, this president and there's not been one since him which brought about substantial social reforms. And here I have to say, I am using the language of Emily's grandfather. Uh, Emily texted me and her grandfather's a very perceptive man, I wish I could meet him, really I wish I spoke Chinese, but he said he doesn't know everything about the US, but it seems to him that without substantial, I would use the word fundamental social reform of the state, uh, the crisis will only deepen and Uh, I would just say it puts the U.S. on the cusp of a civil war, a real civil war. Uh, But Franklin Roosevelt and his administration recognizing this uh, instituted major legislation of reform, including laws that legalized the right of workers to to join unions, uh, which uh, spurred on the union organizing drives in industrial unions like auto and steel and electrical and other places, Uh, uh, legislation instituting social security, some form of uh, medical insurance for people, and then programs uh, to employ youth, like uh, the CCC camps, I forget what the three C's were yes. for, where you he probably heard about- My father. Mine too, you yes. know? <laughs> yes. where uh, young people who would be on the streets were taken as far away as you could say, Iowa or Minnesota to work on, on conservation projects. Yes and so on, Uh, so so many people of the working class have nothing but fond memories of Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, most black people who had voted Republican because of Lincoln shifted to the Democratic Party because of Franklin Roosevelt. Probably, if a poll were taken, maybe the most popular president in American history. You know, that's. Yes. But uh, so that was the last time that happened. Exactly. That's right. The Democratic Party, especially under um, Bill Clinton, began the reversal of this, moving. Uh, as they would have it, the Democratic Party, away from the liberal left to the center. And they said this was necessary in order to compete with Republicans. Uh, But in the end, it transformed over 30 years now, a little over 30 years, transformed the Democratic Party into the party of wealth, of power, uh, where identity politics and, quote, cultural issues, end quote, uh, are uppermost and ceased to be a party fighting poverty, a party of the working class, uh, and also became a party of war. Not alone, of course, because the elites of the Republican Party are also part of the party of war. But I say that to say that working people without marching down the street, beating drums, quietly left the Democratic Party. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that. If you you want to do a, quote, purely race analysis, there are indications that the white South left the Democratic Party after Johnson signed the civil rights legislation, and they did. And so, the Southern Democratic Party, which was always the party of segregation, the party of slavery, uh, this going back to the, definitely the middle of the 18th century, pardon me, the 19th century, the 1800s, suddenly as the Northern liberal part of the Democratic Party, through Roosevelt, then through Johnson signing the civil rights uh, legislation, the white, Uh, Democrats of the South became Republicans. That was over 60 years ago. But Bill Clinton, oh, by the way, which made then the Democratic Party more sensitive to black folk. So the rise of black people in the Democratic Party went hand in glove with. The leaving of the Democratic Party by the South, all the Southern states, you know, became Republican-majority states. The um, so the urban working class, the unions, increasingly women, increasingly. Mexicans and Puerto Ricans became the indispensable base of the Democratic Party. Uh, it still made it difficult for the Democrats to win national elections. So the Republicans could put together a coalition of the South and suburban whites. And Western states, I mean, not California necessarily, but places like Arizona, Mexico, and so on. So it was a coalition of uh, of, uh, of white folk, to put it mildly, because black folk and other uh, uh, peoples of color, and increasingly women, although not as secure as were the black folk, moved towards of of the Democrats, this whole coalition. And that was a coalition inspired by the civil rights movement. And it really was. And I could fill in certain details of different movements. And so you had then uh, black mayors uh, in these big cities and that process continues. Uh, You had the formation of the black congressional caucus which was really the left wing of the House of Representatives, anti-war, anti-poverty, which kind of operated under the uh, spirit and philosophy of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And it was no question, they were all inspired by that. They were all committed to it. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus was ideologically and philosophically committed to Martin Luther King's vision, and to the uh, rise of the black working class as a significant political force within the uh, Democratic Party. Bill Clinton overturned all of that. Uh, That's why it was so egregious when the great novelist, Tony Morrison, made the claim that Bill Clinton was our first black president. (laughs) I mean, that was, a, that was a blow to hear that. And, and she said, because he had certain characteristics like playing a saxophone. I mean, is that all it took? Just parenthetically, you know, when I write about Henry Winston and the black proletariat imaginary and all of this stuff, guy coming out of Mississippi, come on now, don't, don't trivialize the black experience, that's what Morrison did, sadly. But it was this uh, attempt by black elites to wrap Clinton in a garment of blackness, the black struggle, you see what I'm saying? This is our man and we we have to do all we can to make him, to elevate him. Uh, And that Performance, by the way, continues up till today. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do it with Biden. He's a much more difficult guy to do it with. Now, Bill Clinton, you know, always, they're always trying to have this image of themselves as virile and vital and handsome. The guy with, you know, jogging these very skimpy jogging shorts. You know, and all the women. Oh, oh, you know, but you, then you know. So he was supposed to be the picture of health, right? Then he come down with a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, so what happened, dog? But anyway, it's all performance. It's more difficult to do it with Biden. It was done, of course, with the Obamas. Obama is our man. He's charismatic. He's handsome, this handsome thing has been taken all out of. He's handsome, he has a, a wife and daughters and they're yada yada, they got a dog, you know, all that nickel and dime, espionage the don't, but, forget,
2: don't forget the organic uh, uh, garden they had in the back. There. Yeah, right.
1: I won't forget that either. <laughs> they were the perfect <laughs> symbol of American middle-class culture mm-hmm. and why shouldn't a black man be president and why shouldn't a black man be the representative of middle-class values? Mm -hmm. And he was so committed to quote, middle-class values that soon after he was inaugurated, he went around to black churches in particular one in Chicago and said that the problem with black people is that uh, black young men need to pull their pants up, (laughs) that what he was basically saying is the Moynihan thesis that the problem of inequality is not structural but built into uh, the cultural deficits of black people. To hear that from a black man, and most black people said, oh no, he just has to say that to get reelected. And this this is the narrative of the black political class and the black petty bourgeoisie. they are still pursuing that, the black middle class, the black uh, political class, uh, which is now almost roundly despised by the black working class. That we see it here in Philadelphia. But they were controlling the narrative, the mainstream media, the ruling class, as it were promoted such people. Uh, They invented leaders for us. They guaranteed that in districts where black people would win for Congress, that they would choose the black person, that the black person who won would always be someone who agreed with neoliberalism and war and austerity while saying, well, we have to play it this way in order to be at the table, all kinds of excuses. And and you know, the black masses are very patient and and waited and watched and after points in, uh, this is BS mm-hmm. and have now gone in the opposite direction to the black political class. And we talked about this the Philadelphia primary election, where 75 to 80% of registered black voters did not even come out to vote. Something very similar happened in the Chicago election. And this is not because black people are politically irresponsible or politically lazy. It is because this was a rejection of the narrative and excuses for the policy of the white elite that the black political class is putting forward. So, so now we're faced, faced, or at least the ruling class for whom the Democratic Party is the is the party of the ruling class and of the state. People said, well, what about the Republican Party? Well, indeed. Uh, the Republican elite, the Republican uh, elected officials, are in fact are in fact not that different from the Democrats. However, in terms of institutional power, the Democratic Party is literally the party of the ruling class, the party. Of the of the of the military, the party of uh, everything that's wrong, of deindustrialization, of austerity, of poverty, of the collapse of cities, of gentrification—that's the Democratic Party. Uh, and a party that is so class-oriented that is to the ruling class cannot serve two masters at the same time you can't serve the black proletariat and the black poor and silicon valley and wall street at the same time the the interests are too fundamentally different you know take philadelphia you can't be a party of gentrification and at the same time claim you a party of ordinary working people who live in a city. A party of gentrification is a party of high property taxes. It is a party of high interest rates, high mortgage rates. You know, you can't have it both ways. It is a party that turns the city over to the largest, most powerful institutions like the University of Pennsylvania like Temple University, like the huge hospitals, and the banks that are funding a lot of what goes on. That's who owns the city. And it makes no difference what candidates run on at the end of the day, they can only serve one master and that master is the rich. I'm saying that this move from the new, the party of the New Deal and liberalism and even left liberalism and of the working class and black people, that party ceased to exist after the election of Bill Clinton. It didn't happen overnight, it happened gradually. Perhaps the uh, ultimate crystallization of this came with the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And they literally said to the most loyal base of that party Look what we gave you. We gave you a black president. We gave you a symbol, <laughs> here's what he, for your children and youth. We see how that has worked mm-hmm. out. That's simple. Uh, as children and youth are without direction and without hope. You know, so they say, oh, look what we gave you. Now, since we gave you this guy, you have to accept all of the policies of the neocons and the neoliberals, like war in Libya, like war in Syria, like continued war in Iraq, and all of the austerity that goes with it that they never talk about. In other words, you can't have a military-oriented government and a government that fights poverty and for the poor, okay? By the way, this is the same party under Bill Clinton that instituted the most uh, harsh mm-hmm. crime-fighting yes. quote, crime-fighting legislation, perhaps in the history of the United States, which has destroyed at least two generations of young black men. Yes. And by so doing, economically, socially, and otherwise undermine the black community and in part, the destabilization of black communities by the incarceration of huge numbers of black young men who are by taking them, uh, putting them in prison or under the criminal justice system, by the way, One-third of young black men in prison are under the control of the criminal justice system, merely by legislation which criminalized certain kinds of activity and not others. One-third. It meant that that normal uh, process of men and women getting together to have let's say a family or to have two incomes to pay rent or buy a house, all of that is out of the window. A community without young men, which is overpopulated with women and children. That sounds like a people who have been the subject of a war. Kill the young men and leave the women and children to make it the best way they can. Not only that, Bill, but in the same year, the Welfare Reform <laughs> Act. Now, let's be... the One of the centerpieces of the New Deal yeah. was welfare. That if you were poor, if you didn't have a job, the government would provide, ultimately, food stamps as a result of the 60s and the more poverty, but income, some kind of income. Bill Clinton, in one month passed the crime bill and a few months later passed the welfare reform bill that now said you had to work to get your welfare check right now what does that mean okay everybody wants to work but if you are a welfare person and you have to work to get your check that means you have to work for sub-minimum wage jobs so now you have A competition between organized workers or workers that are not on welfare and the poor. But yet the black political class kept talking about this guy as though he were our friend, as though he were one of us. And of course, with the decline, the mental decline of Bill Clinton, and he is in decline, you know, uh, the rise of Hillary Clinton. And so the real, the true face of Clintonism is seen through Hillary. She can't perform as well as Bill Clinton, and she don't have that so-called Southern accent and all of that those things, the fangs yes. of a war maker. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So as the people, and especially the working class and poor, and <clears throat> this is what we have to talk about, not just everyone, but what did the working class see and how did they decide what they would do? And over the course, now, of maybe two decades, decade and a half. The election of Obama was the high point of the Democratic coalition as conceived by Bill Clinton. That was the high point, it's been downhill since. The final blow will be as I suspect it will be, and it's hardly talked about very difficult for pollsters and social scientists to measure what black folk are thinking. So very interesting. <laughs> they just can't, so they don't talk about it that much. But they do know that there is a anger, mm-hmm. and alienation yes. among black people yes. that would make the Trump people look mild. The anger and sense of betrayal and sense of having been lied to is off the charts. And people will say, you know, you were supposed to make, to to the people who run these cities, oh, you were supposed to make it better, but why can't I go to my church choir practice on Tuesday nights? I'm scared. You can't even provide safety for me. Or Why is it you say inflation is going down, but when I go to the store, the price of eggs and bread and milk seems to keep going up. So you're telling me don't believe my, quote, lying eyes and believe what government officials are telling me? No. Black folk are dumb. Now, there is a gender difference And black women tend to want to hold on for longer to the Democrats. Black men have thrown their hands up. It's obvious why. Black men, especially young black men, have been targeted by the criminal justice system. They've been targeted by the education system. In fact, I would argue the most oppressed group in the society are working class black men who are invisible in this woke atmosphere. Now, of course, the Democrats will try to beat the, the talking heads and the uh, black political class will try to make a virtue of the fact that black women remain more loyal to the Democrats than black men. Well, there's several things going on here. Black working class women are almost as angry and as alienated and leaving the Democratic Party as black working class men. College educated, more upper, across more upper middle class black people, may be holding on. You can hear that when you talk to them. It's all kind of apology and all that. Yeah. You talk to black men, it's like, I don't know what I'm gonna do in the election, yeah. but definitely I'm not down with these people. You know, I mean it's it's a bitter, angry uh, kind of response uh, when when you talk to black men. Now, my point, I get to all of this is leading to factions and struggles within the Democratic Party. At the level of the White House, there are at least two factions, the Biden, Clinton faction, and the Obama faction. Uh, uh, Now they're both the same on foreign policy. They don't differ on that. But in terms of political tactics and strategy, there's a wide gap. The Obama faction <clears throat> is where Kamala Harris is located. That's where she comes out of The, the Biden-Clinton faction is obvious, it's Biden and so on. The struggle was so intense, out the gate from the beginning, even probably during the 2020 election, that uh, Biden was forced to take Kamala on the ticket. He didn't want to do that because remember during the debates, she attacked him as a racist. Well, she ain't never lied, but the point of the matter is to have been attacked and humiliated like that by Kamala Harris is is a wound that would not heal. But, the Obama faction said that in order to get the black vote, they knew it was going to be a close election. To mobilize the black vote, you have to put a black woman on the ticket as vice president. Now, of course, Kamala had done abysmally bad in the prime. I think she got 1%. I mean, not even black people were voting for her. Because I had a question about whether she was even black. You know, it's said, first of all, you grew up in Canada. Secondly, your father's from Jamaica and your mother's Indian. So this is a very sensitive thing with black people. You know, uh, all of my like black people say, black people talk funny. You might be my skin folk, but you're not my kin folk. Right. Just because we look alike don't mean we are alike. And this, this is a very sensitive question right now for black people with a lot of African immigrants from elite families, especially Nigerians, getting into elite universities right. under the guise of we are racial minority. No, you're not. And so black people are saying, how are y'all coming over here getting everything that we fought for and we can't get nothing and then after you get what you want, you act like you don't even know us. Right. And it's, it's real, it's real. Uh, of course, neo-Pan-Africanism <clears throat> and Afrocentrism try to s- disguise or veil that, but for the black masses, it's a very sensitive question. Uh, but anyway, but so they, they sideline Kamala Harris during the Biden administration, as a way of sidelining the Obama faction in the Democratic Party. That you can see that. So now, she was never able to mobilize black voters, not even black women. Uh, she went to Howard University, a plus. She joined it. I mean, you know, which kind of socialized her, you know, she knew how to talk black. She knew, you know, sens- sensitivity to the way black people are, at least black elites. She joins a black sorority. I think she's a Delta. You know what I'm saying? If you don't know black, about black sorority, it's one of the, or fraternities, it's one of these civil society organizations, in particular, not in particular, of college educated black folks which is a 20% at best of the black population. So the other 80% uh, don't know much about them, don't care much about them, although sororities and fraternities in black life are very important, the rituals, the uh, professional connections, and I won't go into it too much, but you have to see it. To understand it. It's one of those things. So she joins a black sorority. She has uh, all of them talking about Kamala, our sorrow, sorrow, meaning sister, you know, yada, yada, yada. But still, as the class divide and the ideological divide among black people sharpens, black folk a disenchanted feeling betrayed and i cannot emphasize the sense of being betrayed by people who trusted yes. exactly. you know and they did like divorce you know a simple people who easily trust too too easily trust they trusted Obama and he was not worthy of their trust. And so now they're looking, they're leaving the Democratic Party, which means at this point, there are hardly any working class people in the Democratic Party. Mm. Only a small part of the working class Remains in the Democratic Party. It is almost completely a party of elites, a party of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism meaning, you know, de industrialization, investment, side the country. It is a party of the banks. It is the party, and that that means a lot. By the way, when you say the party of the banks, you mean you're saying a party of those. Who can manipulate currencies Mm -hmm. and money to the advantage of the rich? Yeah. A lot to be said about that. But the rich can get loans. I can't afford a mortgage. Exactly. Or I have to pay back huge college debts. Or, you know, and then these interconnections of banks and high finance, Silicon Valley with big pharma, yada, 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 you know. Basically, it's what Lennon and Guilford did called finance capital. about Finance capital. Black people, black working people, knowing what is real, said, this is not my party. I'm not gonna let you betray me again. I'm not gonna let this happen again. They are leaving the Democratic Party. The question is, will they find themselves in the Trump movement? Now, the ideological attack upon those leaving, just like an end warden, uh, people fleeing, one side going to another, you know, uh, those who are trying to prevent their fleeing can shoot them as they try to run, you know, or find a way to force them back, you know, and this is, it is a, a great migration from the Democratic Party. Hmm. So say, but what, what they will say is, but what are you going to become a Republican now? Hmm. Well, that is, a reductionist framing of the question because this now is not about, I'm gonna try to make the point, about parties or at least the two parties. It is about movements, political movements, Mm -hmm. the likes of which may be doing Franklin Roosevelt but certainly not since. 1854, the founding of the Republican Party. So the thing is I say, well, if you were Trump, that means you would Mitch McConnell, you would Lindsey Graham, you would DeSantis, you with the entire right wing, warmongering side of the Republican Party. Trump is constantly saying, as he said in his announcement, This is a movement, and this is the positive and really brilliant part of his politics tactic, to subvert what is dying and to create something new. Mm -hmm. What is dying are both parties. Mm -hmm. They're unraveling. They're unraveling because they cannot meet the needs of the people, but not being able to meet the needs of the people forces factions and internal fights among them. I've already mentioned at the highest level of the Democratic Party the Hillary Clinton Biden faction and the Obama faction. These are
3: huge
1: uh, forces within the Democratic Party. They are the source of most of the money, you know uh when you see people loving and praising them or elected officials doing that it's because they raise the money that finance elections of individuals but then there are other factions there's the bernie sanders faction now how strong that faction is which includes aoc and the squad uh is anybody's guess One thing, Sanders' constituency rightfully feel and know that he sold out. He sold out in 2016, he sold out in 2020, and he did not live up to the promise that he made, especially to young voters of a new day, a new movement, a new party, something to the left. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a fight for substantial changes in policy and in the state, and if possible, in the Democratic Party itself. Now, the Sanders AOC faction is still active in local elections. That's why you get all of these members of Democratic Socialists of America, running for city council, running for uh, state legislatures, running even for Congress, and so and so. Well, it's like them picking up the pieces, but it's a faction, Mm -hmm. it's a faction. It's not the the two powerful ones. I suspect that within this, there is a labor faction, Mm -hmm. a labor movement faction. How it will manifest, I can't say. What unions are part of it, I don't know. For example, the Teamsters, I don't know if they've come out and endorsed Biden. Uh, the UAW has not, United Automobile Workers. The AFL CIO has endorsed him. But what are the factions within the labor movement? I don't know what they are then there are black people. The big divide among black people is the political class versus everybody else. The educated talking heads that you can easily see on CNN or MSNBC or with podcasts. It is them versus what they believe, are the vo- what they think are the voiceless, and they would even associate that with the mindless masses who are just out there to be given orders of what to do. By the way, the mindless masses realize that the elites think of them that way. Uh, Oh, I won't go further. So, but that's the, it's not so much factions, At the highest level, you might get the Obama black people versus the Biden black people. Uh, But uh, at the level of the political class and the masses, that's the big divide. The tensions within the Democratic Party are such that I don't see how it can be held together as a party, especially if they lose the 2024 election. If they lose, the factional fights will become even more intense, even more bitter, uh, and so on. Uh, I think, therefore, we're looking at the end of that party. Now, of course, you get Social Democrats and Bernie Sanders liberals who say, well, but we can pick up the pieces and remake the Democratic Party into the Democratic Party of the Franklin Roosevelt era. Well, we'll see. I doubt it very seriously. On the other side, the Trump movement is destroying the Republican Party. Republican elites are leaving the Republican Party, uh, you know, like, like rats escaping a sinking ship. Uh, They're forming all of these think tanks and other kind of movements uh, such as No Labels Party, which ain't going nowhere, or the uh, Lincoln Project. All of these um, uh, uh, Republicans who hate Trump, hate the Trump movement, but more than Trump hate these working class, the so-called unwashed, taking over Mm -hmm. the Republic, what is the Republican Party? Right. They they can't and that's what they hate. And so they agree that these people are basket of deplorables, that they are, you know, whatever. (laughs) Trump has effectively destroyed what we call the Republican Party. Now, let me let me just, uh, I'm going to go quickly if you. Forgive me for drawing that out. Yesterday, there was an article in the New York Times by David Brooks. David Brooks is a kind of, all of the Republican elites are now libertarians, you know, whatever that means. But he is kind of that libertarian form of Republican. But he's smart enough that I like his writing. It's informative. And he writes a column yesterday, I, I would recommend it, where he says that how much he likes Biden, he's known Biden, he's interviewed Biden.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Biden is such a great guy, he, he is empathetic to the working class as oh, long as they're oh. not black, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. And then he says, and this is a very, did you read it? Yeah, I read it this morning. Huh? I read it this
5: morning. Yes. And
1: I was like, what? Very, and, and it's very important because then when he makes the shift in the narrative and says, The problem is not essentially Biden or his age or his Alzheimer's or whatever. The problem is the structure and the standing of the Democratic Party with the American people. And then he cites data, which I won't go into, but some of it, that 58% of the American people reject the Democratic Party, then 56% reject the Republican Party. It is what we call a crisis of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. The ruling class can't rule like it used to. Its two parties of the state cannot rule because they do not have the support of the people. He then says, as they all do, that this is a dangerous moment for for, for democracy, which is another way, you know, democracy is the word they use to say it's a dangerous moment for the rule of the ruling, and it is. And he concludes with, there is no way out of this dilemma. It's almost like him saying, we will have to go through the night to reach the light of a better day. He didn't put it that way. This hell, this struggle, this crisis must be gone through if the country is to come out on the other side. But what is the other side? The other side for him is not the other side for most of the people, because this election, which will pit a movement against the ruling elite, will be an election about the ruling elite and can or should it rule. This is a referendum on the class, that gave us deindustrialization, big, huge question. 35 years of deindustrialization can't be made up by one bill in one administration. Deindustrialization, poverty of the working class. You know, used to think at one time you worked. For Ford or General Motors or Chrysler, hey man, you home safe. You know, you got a good job, you got a pension, you got health care, you got a good union. No more. Mm-hmm. And the UAW strike, it's a good strike. And believe me, the workers are going to lose. You're gonna get something, but not enough is sad, in the same way that the UPS strike, the workers got something, but not enough. And in particular, this uh, cancer in the workforce, this two-tier workforce, older workers, workers that have been around for a while, they get, let's say, $35, $40 an hour. New workers coming on, $20 an hour. And no benefits. And no benefits. Yeah, and no benefits. Yes. That- 10 for 10 years. Yes. That is a deeply humiliating and a deep threat to workers. It undermines, well, if I have a union, if we have a union here, why are you allowing this? And so the UAW said, well, we did this at the height of the Great Recession and we were trying to save Ford and General Motors. Okay, you saved them, now what about us? And then Biden said, well, don't worry about that. We're moving to electrical vehicles and we produce them down south where you ain't got no unions. And because electrical vehicles don't require as many components, right. 40% of the workforce is going to be eliminated. In an industry, I mean I it's hard for me to get my head around a hundred and fifty thousand auto workers. I remember that if Ford went out back in the days. It would be you strike against one company, so the other people are working and paying into the strike fund. So my working is helping to pay into the strike fund to help those who will get money and so on while they're on strike. You know, so 150,000 or more would be on strike against Ford and. Uh, 400,000 would be working. Now the workforce is down to 150,000. Thank you to NAFTA, North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, which sucked the jobs of automobile workers to Central America, Mexico, and finally to Asia. The auto industry in the United States is a skeleton of what it used to be. The UAW was this mighty institution of organized labor in the heart of industry. you deindustrialize, de you you know what I'm saying. It's it's a holocaust to speak in in harsh terms of the working class. Okay. Workers have concluded, just like Biden went up there, the first president to be on a strike line for 10 minutes. I think about 12 people showed up. It was the puniest strike line that was ever had in history. Most workers would not even come to see the president of the United States walk on their picket line. Trump has a rally the same day. I don't know how many people came, but it was way more than that. Trump is not a socialist. He is a populist. And that political category has to be understood. Populist movements are not like party movements. Mm -hmm. Populist movements are filled with a conglomeration of all kinds of people. They tend not to be ideologically uh, driven. Very interesting. You see many of these features in the Trump thing. His movement is a movement, as he says, it's a get-back movement. I am your get-back. I am your retribution. You mad at the elite? Vote for me. I'm gonna get them. I'm coming for them. And that's why they're coming for me. Trump has a perfect narrative. It's almost poetic. (laughs) They want to lock me up, but if I get elected, I'm locking them up. (laughs) You got to love it. If you love, if you know, I like it. (laughs) I mean, it's a get back moment. You effed over me for these last forty years. Now I got somebody to get you.
4: That's
1: why you had them black people down in Atlanta talking about free Trump. And that wasn't. That's the as they say. That's the black stream. That ain't being legal. Because black people ain't listening to them people no more. Don't don't bring Barack Obama to my neighborhood. I'm not interested. That's with black people, not some women and some people. President, oh, I'm fine, but most people know. I'm trying to, you know, pay my bills. Okay, I just want to add. I say all of this to say that in a political crisis like this, the stresses and contradictions in the political system deepen and intensify. The political institutions of the state, in particular, the parties of the state, these parties exist, in other words, to defend the state and the configuration of power in a society. That's why they exist. When those two parties go into crisis, it has to be understood also as a crisis of the state. Mm -hmm. And we do face that. That's why this thing of, can the ruling class rule? Which is, can the ruling class maintain state power? Do the people accept their rule? And if the people don't, then how does the ruling class rule? Through force and terror. This is why this thing with Trump. Mm
6: -hmm.
1: Hey, look, let's have a debate. Why are you gonna lock the man up? Why you wait this long? If all this happened 30 years ago, why are you coming with a Me Too thing on him? You know, why you, you know, now? Oh, we just got around to it. <laughs> I mean, all kind of nickel and dime shit. But, Trump's argument resonates and resonates more and more deeply. The disenchanted, the discontented masses who are saying, I don't give a fuck who it is. You attack my enemy, I'm with you. And that's frankly, that's the way the ordinary people look at it. it ain't all this nuance. And, you know, and well I you know that academic shit they carry. No, it ain't that. You left over me. Now I've got somebody to get back. That's what they call a get-back moment. And this is what this election is. It is the state and the booming agreement for a This is not an election of arms. It's not even an election of policy, in essence. It's an election of the people against the ruling class. Does everybody put it that way? That are gonna vote for Trump or see Trump? No. This is what I am saying as a way of understanding and explaining this situation. Now, let's get to the other two parts of the triad of opposition, RK and Cornett West. And that's where a lot of the fun is right now. <laughs> RK Jr. is coming to Philadelphia. Now. It is alleged that he will announce that he's running independent. What independent means, I don't quite know. Mm-hmm. Will he run on a Libertarian ticket or will he try to mount an independent move uh, without party. In other words, try to get on the ballot in a number of states uh, that makes him viable. A number of the states that could get him over the <coughs> 270 electoral college votes. Mm-hmm. Or whether he could do the libertarian thing. I somehow, the more I think about, I think he's gonna go independent. The libertarians are just, It's too much mess up in there, to put it mildly. However he goes, his leaving the Democratic Party will be a judgment upon them and what they're doing to him and what they did to Bernie Sanders, who didn't have the heart or the courage of an RFK Jr. Mm-hmm. They rigged the primaries for Biden. They rigged it for Hillary Clinton. And now they set up some shit where RFK ain't even in the race. And where he is strongest, let's say, in New Hampshire mm-hmm. and Iowa, they said no, the primaries don't count. Mm-hmm. We're starting in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. When we have a political machine, or at least we hope we do, that will be pro-Biden. Then they won't even give the man... Secure, um, secret service, service. service. and you know the guy's a target just by his name, you know? And then you're constantly trying to smear him and misrepresent who he is. The guy said enough is enough, I'm out of here, I will do my own thing, but one thing for certain, I will never, vote for Biden, to which I said, go ahead with your bad <laughs> Go ahead with your, see, that is what, I'm sorry. That is the issue. I will never vote for Biden. And the RFK says, I want the Democratic Party to be the party it was under my uncle John F. Kennedy. And he constantly references this great peace speech that his uncle gave, I think, in 1963, which is a great speech. And this is where, and this is parenthetical now, this is where Cornel West totally messed up. Well, RFK ain't right on the Palestinian question. Okay, he ain't right on the Palestinian question but on the question of war and and peace, for him to wrap himself in that and Martin Luther King, opens up a wider discourse in the course of this, which will include the Middle East and Palestine. You see what I'm saying? I saw in that parentheses, there's so much to be hopeful about with RFK Jr. The ideological framing of peace, what we call a peace industrial economy, away from militarism, away from war, and certainly away from this war in Ukraine, which the Biden administration and the Republicans' elite Republican War Party or faction want to continue indefinitely. They want to bleed Russia in the hope of bringing down. This is a dangerous form of brinksmanship because it carries with it all kinds of dangers, including nuclear war. And it does, and don't trivialize it or minimize it. This is in the thinking of the neocons, especially Victoria Nuland, Blinken. Uh, I don't know what this Jay Sullivan is about, you anyway. uh, know. But that faction of neocons are prepared to push this thing as far as they can, because they see Putin. And this is interesting. They see China as a certain kind of threat but they see Putin himself as an existential threat, Mm -hmm. as a political force on the world scale that is more dangerous in many ways than China as a competitor is. And the reason they see this is the decisive action that the Russians took in Ukraine. They drew a red line He said, you ain't going to put hypersonic nuclear weapons on our border and tell us, take it or get get this fuck out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, how should I put it, it was such a challenge to the integrity and self-identity of the Russian nation to say, we're gonna do what we want, even on your borders, and you can't do nothing about it. And if you try, as you have with the Ukraine war, we will bleed you white. We will sanction you, and then we will carry this war out. This is a ruthless, vicious policy. And the only thing now, not the only, but the main thing standing in their way is the growing anti war, anti intervention sentiment of the American. That is why. This continuing resolution to fund the government for 45 days turned into this great political battle that led to a resolution to vacate Kevin McCarthy. Now they say there's only eight people. It only took eight people to do it, but there are far more that support them. And what the issue was, more than any, of course it was the budget deficit, $33 trillion. The government is in debt. That's 150 times the size of the whole U.S. GDP, gross domestic product. But then they had, even to get that Bill to fund the government for 45 days passed, they had to take Ukraine out of the bill. This was an important moment. If you remember in the summer, over increasing the debt ceiling, where the government was going to close down once again, the battle turned on, not exclusively, but I think the central political battle was overfunded for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time we quoted the figures of congressmen <clears throat> that voted against the war in Ukraine. I think it was over 80 in the end, over 100 and some voted against um, uh, uh, certain munitions, uh, cluster bombs or whatever mm-hmm. going to Ukraine but all of these huge votes against military and other funding for the Ukraine war. That continued up to this time. I don't think there's ever been such a determined anti-war faction within the House of Representatives as is this. Never. And I always use the example of at the height of the war in Vietnam, we could not have mustered this. Which to me suggests that the anti war sentiment among the American people is higher than even at the time of the war in Vietnam, which was a high point of anti-war sentiment among the U.S. population. So Trump says, I will end the war. His statements concerning Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and other, quote, enemies of the United States and of democracy, Trump always praises them and expresses his difference with them, but always praises them, which is a necessary part of a detente. Mm. You can't call Xi Jinping a dictator and uh, Putin a fascist and then say, we want peaceful relations with your country. The Chinese don't, don't accept it. You're not gonna call Xi Jinping everything but a child of god and lie like biden tell me one thing when you're in my face and then behind my back you do something else or you send uh jake sullivan and this anthony blinken up there to get in my in my diplomats faces and they have to you know tell you to back off you know what i'm saying you if you're interested in peaceful coexistence the first thing is to respect the head of state of the country you've seen peaceful coexistence with. If you call me all of these names and smear my name and shit, I can't deal with you. I can't trust you. That's an act of hostility against the nation. The Chinese understand it that way. By the way, the Chinese are very proud people. And it's just... <laughs> The North Koreans are very proud. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Trump, in a second term, here, will not, and he has said this, will not be a president of war. We don't hear any of this over here as he's a No, he said, I will be a president of peace. What all that means depends on what the people do.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, RFK, again, like we say, his uncle's 1963 great peace speech, his identification with Martin Luther King Jr. And to me, that's always the litmus test how you treat King and that legacy. If you try to treat him in a patronizing, trivializing way. And I don't, I don't want to hear that. If this be an American nation, a new American people, that's the father. That's the father. If America is to be the last white nation, that's the father. You understand what I'm saying? Really, when you study the historical configuration, if you can say Lincoln freed the slaves, Why is it so hard to say Martin Luther King is the father of a new nation? That's what's up, okay? Now Cornel (sighs) West. You know, uh, it was always going to be a problem. As we noted, uh, philosophically, it was pragmatism and philosophy predisposes him to certain things, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of talking, which uh, keep him in the liberal, uh, political establishment. But he announced, I think two days ago, that he was leaving the Green Party. Now he's going to run his independent Okay, uh, corner, I love you to death. You know what I'm saying? Love you to death. But you're making a fool of yourself now. (laughs) I mean, really, it doesn't look good. Because people will say, well, are you serious? You start with the people's Party, then you cut them loose because they got contradictions. Then you go to the Green Party with Chris Hedges and John Baraka and and Jill Stein. Mm -hmm. Then you bring in a cat that was associated with John Kerry and Hillary Clinton's campaigns to be your campaign advisor, your manager of your campaign. And then suddenly you leave the Green Party. (coughs) say because they got too much baggage and so on. And even when I hear Cornell speak, I'm always saying to myself, I'm going to Peace, industrial economy, repeat after me. Peace, industrial economy. Get it? Peace, indu- peace, peace, you get that? But no, it's everything thrown into a grab bag of issues. Everything from the Dalits in India to Uh, cop city Mm -hmm. in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And you do not show a connected issue. The only connective issue, uh, thread, is that I am the candidate against all forms of injustice. Mm -hmm. But Cornell, peace, industrial (laughs) repeat. Couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. But here's what I think finally broke Cornell, and he's he's broken. I say that knowing him, I say that by looking at him. The struggle is not a game. The struggle is not a matter of charisma and articulate speeches. That's not, once you put yourself on the stage of history, their consequences. Mm-hmm. Cornell was polling at four and five percent. According to the ruling class, he was pulling black voters and young voters away from Biden and the Democrats, or potentially would, you know, enough of a threat in a close election that they're they're already in panic mode, the ruling class. Cornell thought he would get in this and it would be a Biden victory and he would be that left force that brings the left together, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think even the question of bringing the left together, he underestimated its difficulty and how broken what is called the left is. But then he drops out. I I couldn't believe it, So I had to listen to this uh, in-black podcast, and I'm listening and he doesn't make sense. He does not make sense. It is as though he is in meltdown of form. He's losing it. You know, I'm a jazz man, I'm improvisational. Mm -hmm but I don't think you understand improvisation. It ain't just randomness, you know? They're foundations, they're grounding. You know, Monk do one kind, of, Monk does one kind of improvisation, Miles do another kind, Archie do a different kind, Train do a different kind. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Billie Holiday. So it's not just anything you want to do. You know, it's not that. So he misunderstands that and misuses it as a metaphor for being nimble and free and uh, able to shift on a dime, as they say. (laughs) Because at this stage, you're not just operating as an intellectual and academic, now you're saying to people, I want you to believe in me, I want you to trust me. And now you've broken trust with the people. Can't trust me. So then, he, um, oh. So I'm listening to him incoherent, very incoherent. Um, see, there's something about, you know, when we study discourse and discursive practices, when people speak, when the discourse is incoherent, when there's not a logic, underpinning or grounding it, then you have to say, oh, the person, at least I said, he's being intentionally obscure. This is intentional. I said the other thing, he's in panic mode. Mm-hmm. He's unraveling. And what was, that? why did he do this? Here's what I concluded. Oh. Uh, and this was a major, I think, political event this far in, as the campaigns go. The ABC Washington Post poll of three weeks ago. I recommend to everybody go back and look at that poll. Polls don't say it all. But among the things that this poll showed, and here we're talking about ABC and the Washington Post, these are pro-establishment, pro-ruling class. Uh, The Washington Post is the newspaper record of the Democratic Party. And that poll showed... That Trump was defeating Biden by 10 percentage points. The ruling class went fuck wow, wild, crazy. They have not recovered. I mean, even though they had come to see as normal polls that showed Trump up by two points, Biden in another poll up by one point, they even, you know. So they said, okay, it's going to be a tough election, we got a lot of uh, things to play. We can fuck him up. We can laugh him up. You know, that kind of thing. This poll showed 10%, which meant that huge parts of what was called the Democratic Party Coalition had abandoned them. The center had collapsed the governing and vital center of governance in the country had collapsed. The people had decided, that's what the people had decided, that Biden must go. That's what that 10 points. At that point, I know, or I'm certain, that uh, Cornell, who has connections in the elite, black and white, through Harvard, through Princeton, through who he is. And I, I can almost see some of the people that I know that know him saying, Cornell, look, man. You can't be a part of letting this happen, Mm -hmm. can't be a part of electing Trump, this is existential and it is critical. Now we already said that Cornell's compromise with this Trump is a neo-fascist thing already. You ain't going to be able to do but so much intellectually and ideologically and politically with that type of orientation in the face of 75 million and more Americans, including Black and Mexican and Puerto Rican and so on. Seeing this as their get back moment, you're going in the opposite direction, talking about the Dallas and Cobb City and and then poverty and trans. Wait, hold man. Focus on something, man. Trans ain't poverty. You know what I'm saying? So, but they got and went to them. I'm not going to name names, but if you ask me outside, I'll tell you. They went to them and said, look, corn, they call them corn. Corn. Can't let this happen. You can't be associated with that. If you let, now he's the elite black at Princeton, at Harvard, at, uh, you know, all the elite places all over New York. He's listening to the, he ain't listening to the black masses. Mm -hmm. He done forgot how to talk to them. Believe me. And this is sad. Mm -hmm. He ain't feeling the black poor who want to get back momentum. You can't do this. You're gonna to have to either drop out or find another way to do this. Then on the other side, you have the ruling class, the FBI. We're gonna circle you with agent provocateurs. Whenever you show up to speak, we're gonna disrupt you. You understand? But then we're going I'm gonna do we're gonna do a me too. Move on me, you know. Me too. Move. In. Thirty years ago, mm-hmm. I was Cornell student at Harvard, and he came up on me and touched me inappropriately. <laughs> that's coming. You, mm-hmm. you say mm-hmm. like, well, why do you say this back then? Well, it was too traumatized. Well, you know, that's a me too moment. You can use that on anybody. Yes. <laughs> And who is to say? But you don't have to have any. You don't have to say anything because all you have to say is, "I said it, and I believe her." And I said, "Well, no, it didn't happen." To-. See, Trump had his own way of dealing with that "me too" thing. So what? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I'm not going. You know, you said that I didn't do that type of thing. Now with Biden. Remember the woman that came out and said that he had uh, sexually harassed her? It got so bad on her, she had to move to Russia. Yeah, she's over in Russia now. But then every bit of intelligence they have on you to discredit your character. Oh, we got pictures of you in a gay bathhouse. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, but. All of that is deployed. So you get the liberals on the one side, his friends, corn, oh, you can't let this happen. If you let this happen for the rest of your life, you will be known as the person that elected Trump. Again, it was that ABC, Washington Post. And then polls that have followed, there was one recently in the New York Post just a couple days ago that showed, and this is a kind of strange poll, but it showed Biden winning by two points of those people who are certain they're going to vote. Well, a year year, and a month, 14 months out, how many people are certain they're going to vote? But then, even then, Biden only wins by two points. But then on all of the issues inflation Trump leads Biden by 25 points on immigration by 30 points on all of the fundamental questions Trump leads Biden Cornell is not running for president any longer He will talk he may be he may go on some TV shows and Podcast, but he's out of the race. Uh, we had talked about about triads and dyads. <laughs> uh, going forward, there is a possibility that um, oh, and this is a speculative and maybe a long shot of a Trump RFK ticket, a fusion. Um that's a possibility. I think with with Cornell out of it, I I was I was hoping that he would stay in it for for kind of all kinds of reasons, including the year Baldwin, but he's out of it. I think he is now, he has to, pick up the pieces. He has to defend his own reputation or brand because he has shown himself not to be serious and not to be trusted by the people. Mm. I'll just stop there. Okay, go ahead.
2: Yeah, you mentioned uh, Roosevelt and I what came in my mind was that uh, it's almost like they were saying, uh, uh-oh, the masses are getting to go with the socialists. Uh-oh, the masses are going go with the socialists. Yeah. So then they give the American people all of these benefits and see, and, and then I guess the implication was supposed to be, see, you can get all this, something, I'm saying, and you don't have to go with the socialists. Now, you go into the the class or status system. And what you're talking about is you're born a human being, but you socialized into a class and they got specific status allotted per class. This is artificial, but it has real effects. Now, in order to get the people from tearing down the class system. You have to pacify them. Now, if you pacify them good enough, they'll tolerate. Let you. me
1: let me just let me just make a point here. Because, uh-huh. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yes, and that is a part of rule. Yeah. If the people are rebelling, you give them something to soften their opposition. Yeah, a nice big bone. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And and we'll take the bone. Yeah. And it was, and the New Deal were were substantial reforms, right? They not were. to be, not to be. Oh, they were. About. Okay, they were. Now, now, twenty twenty three, there are no more bones, right? So that's now, why it's we go get getting right. you.
2: Sorry. Now, now, this, this, now,
4: if you had kept that up
2: those were enough that you yes. would have pacified the masses from doing what they would they would what they would have done they would have went to a point and they would have tore down yes the class system it's artificial but it has real, real effect now let's 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 take a little trip to, to, to Europe. the wg european power mm-hmm. and americans power mm-hmm. is that the europeans that in order for the European power, knows that in order for them to continue to keep the class system, world class, middle class.
1: You have to concede something. You got to pacify them good. So here's what they do. Well, well, they not, they're not say, well, let me say this. You have to concede something to the masses in a battle. You know where it's a standoff. You have they had to concede. Yeah. And Europe is. Oh, go ahead.
2: So anyway, so what they do? What they did. They, they do really good.
1: Oh, universal healthcare. Oh,
2: oh, support all of this money going into the arts. You are
1: Germany. But know. let me let me let me wait, uh, wait no wait no, wait, no wait, hold wait. it hold it man no 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 but hold it hold it but see let let me just say this uh, ransom. Let's stay on the issue.
2: No, but I'm, I'm coming into this but,
1: okay okay you know
2: just, just let me
1: go there you know mm-hmm. you not have to agree with it but no it's not a matter of agree or disagree it's a matter yeah. of staying on
2: point oh yeah mm-hmm. so anyway you know moving right along as quickly as possible
4: mm-hmm.
2: all right so you know they give all of these benefits and what have you like in germany for instance you know like the Germany's not big as Texas, but it grants more money in one month to, to mm-hmm. support of the supportive arts mm-hmm. to, uh, than the whole United States grants in one year. Stuff right. like that. But what this is really about, they don't care about the people. What this is really about is um, what is six uh, percent. Well, oh, music to the savage beast. So now what you're doing is, you know what I mean, you are you are thoroughly pacifying the masses. And, and the payoff of this is that they are, they will tolerate the class or status system. Now, the Americans think they can just do whatever they want to do and that the masses aren't going to do what they would at some point do. They don't know what the, I guess maybe because you had full grown revolutionist canon in, in, in all, you know, Europe, you know what I mean, you know what I mean? So... This is gonna be very interesting because if they go far enough with that, yeah. you will not have a full-blown, but if they don't, then they could pacify the American people to the point where they would um, tolerate or yes. they think
1: they can. Yes. But, and then
2: again, it could be too late for that and the American people get not want fight.
1: But see, that, that's my thesis. It's too late. It's too little, too late. Or
7: who, or that and that, that's that's
1: where we're at, and that's where we're at, Ransom. You're absolutely, and that's the point I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to make. That what they could have done, they didn't do, and that the Bill Clinton regime finally closed the door and said, the Democratic Party, the party associated with concessions, be it civil rights or trade union rights or whatever, is now the party that says no more. And this is where we're at.
8: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, go, go ahead,
8: Yeah, one thing I just wanted to, to mention is the context of the global situation Absolutely. in terms of the development you say about the Democratic Party. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about Franklin Del Rosso uh, Delano Roosevelt, he comes out of the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the uh the depression that happens in Europe and America is a direct result of the Rothschilds and other uh financiers losing out on that entire uh north portion of, of Asia, um in large in, in large respect. And um much of the, the concessions that you say the pass, the pacification comes from the battle you're talking about, which is Communists and labor leaders yeah. who are leading that struggle and ultimately getting to a point where they were organizing for an actual revolution. And that's when FDR comes in and says, these are the things, like these are the things we need to do to save the power structure in this society. So it very much was a dynamic relationship because on the other side of the ocean, you could see a society that had all of those labor laws, and people could say, Well, wait a minute, why can't we have that? They're providing that to hundreds of millions of people in Russia right now, so yeah. the Soviet Union. Um, And, of course, you know, it's interesting you bring up Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton arrives at the scene directly following the dissolution or the overthrow of the Soviet Union. So this is a point where no longer can you look to the east and say, oh, look, there's all these protections here. And on top of that, you have a ruling class that now is emboldened because it doesn't have any check on its power. It no longer has to be the pretense of, of labor laws. Yeah. And, of course, you see that with what you talked about in NAFTA, of, of just immediately shipping as many industries as they could outside of the country because, again, there is no other power structure in place where working people can see a, a direction. Um, and I think in that develops this immense hubris from this class that they can just do whatever they want, print whatever kind of money to solve any kind of problem because – know they can get a country like the soviet union to you know write away their rights on a piece of paper without even contributing any soldiers to destroying that country at least in the end um and of course the dynamic now is a direct result of that as well i mean the, the war in ukraine which you know our ruling elite will say is for sovereignty well sovereignty didn't seem to matter when the majority of ukrainians and a referendum voted to remain in the soviet union that that sovereignty didn't matter at all then. Yeah. um so you know it, it's just the dynamic of russia and america in this moment and how much has been lost both in our own public consciousness um you know in in in, in understanding that, that we are so connected in a real world economically uh, politically philosophically um as well as the ruling class i think detaching themselves because i think in in overcoming the the quote-unquote soviet menace i think they believed they could do anything they wanted and now they're meeting this point where russia is saying no actually there are limits to your power here they are um and they still keep charging you know straight ahead into this into this wall um so i mean i just think that that that's definitely a bigger part of the, the context of what we're talking about is is how much we need to reinvestigate why we are here and the 20th century in general because that big gaping hole that is the soviet contribution to our society um, Mm -hmm. needs to be understood
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i just want to add to what emil was saying and that it's really interesting when you compare basically the early 2000s to this moment and that yeah basically like after the collapse of the soviet union like the way that the ruling elite tried to unify the general population was through war, right? And they bet that they could do that with like the war on terror and all that stuff, that this would be a unifying thing for the people, but essentially also to consolidate the rule of like the U.S. ruling class um, and like American hegemony and all those things in like the unipolar world. But that the ironic thing about today is that in basically pushing for the war against Russia, they've um, done the opposite thing. And I feel like that also shows the changes of the American people basically since like the time of like the 90s and those, those, change, those vast changes that you described um, with the Democratic Party, the Republicans, Bill Clinton, all that stuff. But I just think that that's, it's really interesting to reflect on that. Like in the past, the US ruling class would have used the war to unite people right but that now actually by waging war against russia they've done the opposite and they've actually further one they've you know created fractures in like the general population but it's more like as you're saying the essence of like the political moment of the 2024 election is not about even like this the way that you would typically think about election, which is party versus party, or just like a winner takes all kind of thing, but it is about the elites versus the people. And I think that that's really important to also focus on because it's just like part of what is really exciting about this moment, but also like fascinating and like a little perplexing is this question of it's almost like the political movement of the American people is taking shape through an election but it's also like almost straining beyond the kind of typical mechanisms and the typical norms that you associate also with an election it's almost like the people are straining beyond the political institutions that currently exist which is why it's like it is very easy to look at this election as just like oh like who which party will win like winner take all because even like there's been a lot of um debate recently Around, even there, there's a lot of confusion amongst the mainstream media in terms of would RFK Jr. if he decided to run all the way as an independent in the 2024 election as like the leading third-party candidate, would it would that hurt Trump or Biden more? And there's conflicting polls around yes. this because it is like it's obvious that RFK Jr. would pull a lot from the Trump movement and the Trump coalition. Like this is part of the coalition of discontented, so that makes sense. But I feel like that is a way of framing it where it's just like, oh, the election is about who wins. And that disguises or covers up the actual, the heart of the dynamic, which is um, this election being a vehicle, vehicle essentially for further <coughs> like uniting of the American people against the elites and then how they will, like how the people will then place pressure on whether it's R.P. Jr., on Trump, I guess Cornell's out of the picture now, but even, especially those two like, yeah, I like I really like what you said in terms of everything depends on what the people do right. and what they demand also of these figures like RFK right. or Trump and, you know, then how, how those figures choose to respond to the, pe- the constituency that make up this movement and not necessarily any particular party. Right. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's also, like, the... It's just a time in which, like, so many things are happening that are really as you're saying it's almost like an accelerated pace of development but it's also that like norms are being broken precedents are being broken like the fact that kevin mccarthy was ousted to the speaker in like first, time in, first time in history other than someone dying <laughs> <laughs> and So yeah it's just like things are happening like like i also but then on the on the flip side it's like yeah i, I saw like newsweek did a big um expose within the past week that the FBI has created a new subcategory of extremism, like an official subcategory of extremism and potential domestic terrorism, which is basically the Trump movement. Like, and this is being used as justification to essentially track and surveil and obviously undermine the Trump movement, which is like 70 million people. And yeah, I think it's it's a time in which basically like new, the ruling class is having to resort to new to new tactics and strategy. But also it's just like, it just feels like the existing political system, the institutions themselves, they're being strained at their limit because of what because of what the people essentially are doing. And I think this is also, it's interesting to compare it to like what we were just talking about in terms of, you know whether it's a question of appeasing the masses and all that, but it's like one way that you can interpret, for instance, something like the civil rights movement is that it will simultaneously making the most demands that they could out of the existing basically bourgeois political system simultaneously while almost like posing and like almost creating in a nascent form like a a new kind of democracy so it's like placing demands on the existing democratic system while also like in its yeah in it's in a yeah nascent form basically yeah like Forging the seeds for a new kind of democracy oh, to emerge, so you almost have these like parallel developments, which I think is part of then like how the Democratic Party was able to take advantage of that, right? Because it was almost you had like parallel phenomena happening at the same time. Uh, yeah, the dialectical movement of it, and um, and yeah, I just feel like it's yeah really important to keep an eye on like what is there is the appearance of things and how the ruling class will try to spin things, even when it's even when it's losing. You know, like for instance, like Kevin McCarthy being asked as a speaker, the Democrats are trying to position themselves and be like, oh, like we are so good, like we're united, like we don't have all the problems that the Republicans have. But this is literally like a week after, like all of this, like you know, in the basically on the on the heels of all of this reporting about how the Democratic coalition itself is collapsing, like all of these groups are leaving the Democratic Party, there's no future, but now they're gonna be like, oh though, like look at what's happening to the republicans we're the ones who are actually more united than ever before but i feel like it's more just like yeah there's the appearance of things but then like how do people how do the people themselves perceive the substance and the essence of like the the nature of the political struggle right now i think is really Really important. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I really like the way that you phrase this. Oh, yeah, I mean,
8: I think uh, something that has uh, spoken to me about this moment is how the perception is changing in the public and within each party. I mean, I think a big part this this whole thing with Mike McCarthy or Kevin, Kevin McCarthy Kevin. Uh, being ousted. I think back not that long ago. I mean, was it a year ago that there was this push? for AOC and this uh, squad of progressives to try to oust Nancy Pelosi in this uh, demand for healthcare, universal healthcare, that they would force the vote, was this idea. And if she wouldn't even have a floor vote, then she shouldn't even be leading the the democratic party in this way. Um, And we were basically told by the quote unquote progressives that we can't demand things like that. We need to work with these people. They they are on our, our team ultimately. And what we're getting from the Republican side and specifically the Trump wing in this freedom caucus is that no, you know, basically, they're they're quoting Frederick Douglass: "Power concedes nothing without a demand. You will not get any any inch further. These people because they are diametrically opposed to your way of life. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting that w- what this guy Matt Gates did. Took a lot of guts to put himself out there and it say yeah. this, this needs to change now. We need to break the fever. Um, and of course, he got attacked in every mainstream publication imaginable. But what happened after he demanded these things? You know." The, the, the system had to make a change. It had to adapt to this. I don't, I don't
1: think they made a change. I think if I'm anxious. Whoa, okay.
8: I mean, I just mean like the the reality of what we're talking about is unprecedented move where, you know, the, the, the entire democratic party voted in line and the eight or so Republicans who, who wanted this guy out, got the guy out. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it, they tried to bargain with him. They tried to, uh, Mm-hmm. No. I, I,
1: I, think, I think the war within the, in the Republicans in the House of Representatives is far more substantive. It has everything to do with the 2024 election, a good part of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. A, on the vanguard, that's the out front don't trust this guy or anybody associated with him. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's the case. This is why this Trump movement is so important. It is a movement. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. cut. So I I don't think they even adapted. They just retreated to fight another
8: day. I I would put it that way. Sure, sure. I mean, the whole reason Kevin McCarty was was even... uh, Put into his position was because he agreed to a certain amount of demands, Absolutely. and then he went back on those demands. Absolutely. And as soon as he went back on those demands, these people stepped Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And,
1: and one of them was Ukraine funding. Yeah. yeah this
8: is yeah. huge. I, but I, I don't want to overstep. Your no, I'm. I'm question.
1: just saying that there's
6: a there's this a battle,
1: This is a subs, This battle is substantive. <laughs> it is. It is sub. In a sense that <laughs> battles like this will decide the future. <laughs> of what the political, what politics will look like in this country. I'm suggesting that, let me just say, definitely the Democrats as a party will be limping even if they continue to exist. What the Republican party will be is still up for grabs Mm -hmm. because the dominant and ascending wing, of course, is the Trump wing, you know, the ruling class wing, and he calls them out, that's to his advantage, I mean, to his credit, you know, and that he's supporting uh, Jordan, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan to be the speaker, who is one of the most pro-Trump people. I, th- I think this yes. battle, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm, yes. this battle will continue. This is, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to touch you, go ahead. No, I, mean, I don't no. think it's
8: resolved at all. No, I, I agree, but I just think the perception in many of the voting public, especially the base of the public parties, that we can't work with these people. That, that's we, the point. There, there is no... They, uh, they
1: can't be trusted. Right. They cannot be trusted. That's the same feeling that black and working class voters have about the elite of the democratic Party.
8: We and can't it, trust And you. it reflects how the Russian leadership and the Chinese leadership see the American well, leadership. Well, yeah, they, they see, uh, yeah.
1: Or, yeah. But, but go, let me, I, I think, no, no, no let, let Danny go right. and then Samir.
9: Uh, yeah, just real quickly, I wanted to tie in Ranson's point about all the public benefits that they have in Europe are all subsidized because the US pays the Europe security bill. And, uh, uh, you know, all through NATO, you know, the US mostly puts the bill. So they're able to provide all these, you know, and it's great, you know, public health care because it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. Mm-hmm. But, um, Um, Yeah, you know, the history of Europe has always been, you know, what war, what battle. That's how Europeans have measured history, is a collection of battles. Mm -hmm. Um, And without NATO, without the U.S. coming in to stabilize Europe after World War II, Europe would look completely, you know, completely different. It wouldn't be developed. And... um, well, I think
1: I, it would be, but it would be under socialist conditions. Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's what, they, that's what the Marshall Plan and all of that was about. And NATO, uh, to prevent uh, the countries of Europe after World War II, especially Italy and France and Germany as a whole, going, becoming socialist, or more left-leaning social democratic and, of course, anti-war more for detente with the Soviet Union. But
9: that that's why, to, you know, us talking about NATO, it's, it's primary over both the U.S. The America-Russia relationship is yeah. over-determining, over, over-determining, over Europe, over Europe's relationship. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I, um, Europe, you know, without the U.S., uh, they can't unify themselves, the big north-south gap, mm-hmm. and the European Union just would collapse, you know, it's nothing yes. more. Than an economic union, it's not a military union. Yes.
1: Go ahead, Dan.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like Germany, and France combining. Speak up a little bit. Germany there. and France combining. That was the EU project to try to make sure that they didn't fight again. Germany and France. It's like the EU. Yes, it's the European Union. EU, that's all I'm saying. Okay, you know, but I, I guess I just want to say too. So I. Now I'm going to, to say some things about the New Deal, but I also wanted to, to talk about the Trump thing so both things kind of can open my mouth. <laughs> open my mouth. Talk, I'll talk slowly and just have it through my chest like this, I guess. So like public I, I can hear very well.
2: <laughs> I can understand I can, you very well. Oh. Yeah. Okay, okay. You
3: know, <laughs> i I might, I might have been talking quietly so I'll, I'll try to project and talk I I guess when I when I think of the New Deal, the New Deal was very much inspired by the Square Deal, which was Teddy Roosevelt's program. So it was prior to the October Revolution. And a lot of the people who wrote the Square Deal then were in FDR's administration (laughs) cabinet. So there is like and I'm not saying this as a, a affirmation, there's progressive capitalism, there's like Bismarck, there's like a Louis Bonaparte, there's like Things like that. There's Woodrow Wilson as well, who, so there are, there already were arguments for look, we can't simply maintain the same thing, we have to change. Of course, mass political uprisings matter a lot as well, and certainly will uh, lead them to concede concessions. Um, but it's also one of these things that the reforms that happen, they're still going to reform. I feel like I have to yell now because I'm worried. <laughs> they're still going to reform a contradiction, and so they're still going to transform it, and it's still going to lead to things. And there were, you know, issues as well, even in the, the 50s. Like there was all sorts of things. But I didn't. We don't have to go down that road. I wanted to say this in terms of the uh, Jeremiah. You brought up RFK and, and Trump. I I don't know what my uh, opinion is on 2024 in terms of how. I do think actually Trump will win, but I don't know it will necessarily be like a 2016 kind of thing. And what I mean by that is last year, when I was in New York, briefly, during the Roe v. Wade ruling, I went to the park, there was a humongous protest, like DSA people, and I was talking to one of them. uh, there was a, a black man on a bicycle who was kind of riding by, and he was kind of listening to me sort of debate one of these DSA people. And I don't know what I said, but he did turn me and go, that's right. And I started talking it. <laughs> and it. And it was something about, like, this person was saying something. I had lived in Texas for six years, and I was saying something about the South had these views and everything. And I went, that's not the case. And the, the man who was on the bicycle, the black man, he, was, he lived in Houston also as well. And he said he voted for Trump in 2016, but then he didn't vote in 2020. Maybe this person will vote in 2024. I don't know. But the reason I bring that up is that I my my feeling is that this election might have a victory through also mm-hmm. kind of. I'm trying. This is going to sound like a negative word. That kind of. Demoralization of voters. I mean, people might just leave the Democratic Party, but not, might not potentially go to the Republican Party. True. They might, there, there might be a lot of changeover. I just got a book by Jason Riley. The book is called The Black Boom. It's a defense of Trump for, you know, like, oh, like wages and employment, it was higher under Trump. It's a Wall Street Journal view, but I got it because I'll read anything. I'll read, I, read all the, I read all the Trump intellectuals, and they're all like wild and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, Steve Bannon wanted R.F.K. to run as the <laughs> vice president. Yeah, but, no, oh, really? really? And I'm not like really crazy about Bannon either, but uh, it's the fact uh, that he said uh, it was something yeah. <laughs> So to me, I, I don't know, I don't know, and I'm just raising those different things of how it may potentially, I know, I feel like the Democrats want to, and there's a legal term for this, it's bad legal ethics. They're trying to show, throw as many possible indictments As possible in Trump, Mm -hmm. so that he's almost flooded with them, and it's like, and people just want to be like, I don't even want to hear it, kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. just saddle him with baggage. And likewise, also, of course, with Biden, I feel like they're going to try the same thing they did in 2020, which is put him in his basement and don't talk about him or something. Like, he won in 2020 by being in the basement, basically. Mm -hmm. Biden. Because anytime he opened his mouth, it was like I don't, I don't really know. So right? to Georgia, fish, and comes Not like, to talk, and, and everything focused on Trump. Trump. Like, <laughs> I kind of focus, and so I don't know. That's like my feeling. Or,
6: or what about yeah. the possibility of them pulling by, yeah. which seems more and more likely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a gamble with it. And, and I agree that that very much could happen. If they do that, they have to go yeah actually we are in a bad position they have to like really
1: be like can i just say something Danny?" please i'm
3: done i'm done no no
1: no. i i this is very important it's a complicated and fluid situation and um again I, i go back to that abc washington post poll which was a political event first of all that it was even published it was sending a message, and you know, again, the Washington Post is the party of record of the Democrats and the establishment. That poll sent shockwaves. There was always, can can Biden do it? Is he too old? Do people see him as a daughter? You know, blah blah blah. But this poll sealed it. I, I'm of the opinion that. At, at the level of the Democratic Party and the political elites, that changed the mindset. This is war. We're we're in an existential situation. And forgive me, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic or whatever. No. A ruling class that is asking the question, "Can we rule?" Would would you agree with the
10: answer Sure. Yeah.
1: And if we can, if the people reject our rule, where do we go? What do we do? Yeah. A lot can be lost, you know. Big houses, you know, jobs. A lot is at stake. Just at the personal, you know, class level. Yeah. Can at, I the think, per, at the personal, at the personal. Go ahead.
3: Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. So yes. another thing that just happened this week, and of course I was. I'm gonna speak loud. Yes. I lived in Houston when this was <laughs> <laughs> And what was happening at the time was when Trump was running, build the wall, build the wall, and to even, you know, to even say, didn't Clinton already support building the wall along the Rio Grande Valley? Mm-hmm. Stop talking, don't even say anything, how dare you, you're giving ammunition to the enemy kind of thing. Like that. This week, not only last year, yeah. did Biden already yeah. allow for the wall to continue, now they're expanding it. Yeah, they and the reason I bring that up is, and this goes to your point about the ruling, they end up having to do the same things, but the reason I feel like they kind of really do not like Trump is it actually is at an ideological level, which is maybe most important for the, the ruling class. because. Maybe even they might do some of the same policies, and there's continuity. You were mentioning the Democrats. There's, of course, continuity between administration because there's thousands and thousands of people, but they really don't like them because they're challenging their way of ruling. All of the ideology, everything, how they were taught to rule, um, this is Jacob Siegel has a great essay on this about there's like even the habits and customs yeah. of ruling like how mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. rule and mm-hmm. it's the circle <laughs> and he seems to like break that and so they I feel like they really feel it at a very existential level of like my whole legacy or my whole meaning my whole cosmology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is at issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say one thing? Okay, I'm stop talking. And I, no, 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 <laughs> no. Please don't. Please don't. There's another reason, I think the deeper reason they hate Trump. He is giving a voice to those that are not supposed to have a voice. He is giving a voice Mm -hmm. to an anger that they fear. Mm -hmm. The ruling elites, pampered, you know, and really pampered, just, I could use the B word, but I (laughs) won't. I mean, you know, just to be around these people makes you want to vomit you know, so entitled and all of that. How dare you give voice to people that I have utter contempt for? Mm. Me sitting in my office at Princeton or Columbia. Mm-hmm. This is this is deep. I, I agree with you about habits and that, that anthropological word, which you are habituated to what you are used to, all of that might end. That's why, you know, you know, street language, a get back time. It's mm-hmm. yes. a yes. no, so get back. And and, and I, I think it is I, I just I, I agree with everyone. It's very exciting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, to see the ruling class in such a state of panic. I don't think you can overlook it. To see Trump uh, throwing them into panic, and I agree with you. If things continue as they are, he will be elected. In fact, if they run by, the election will be over by May or June of next year. Doesn't have to go to no. It'll
11: be, you'll over be, be so
1: far in it'll the be over, It'll
11: be over today. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, no. Uh, I'm just saying. But it might. You might be right. You might. It might already be over. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's an interesting question, Jake. But let's not close the door. It I'm, the door. Yeah, yeah, not no, I'm not just saying. I'm not, I'm not, no, 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 I'm no. No, no, no. It's like saying. Russian America. Yeah, yeah. Because no, no, listen you
11: know, to name. Like, listen, listen to what Christian I'm saying, Jake. No, no, let me talk. Yeah. It.
1: I'm agreeing with your point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It right. might already be over. That's what I'm saying. This is very, this is an interesting consideration. Is it already over? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. <Yeah. laughs> let, let me let me see what Jerry but has to say General about that. Okay.
11: James Baldwin's Princes and Powers. That's the current you know, if you want to look at a moment in terms of mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is where we're at with things so yes, That's kind of, you know, princes and powers. That's the first one that's um, look, you know, right, right now uh, the question is uh, communism or cultural revolution. We're kind of like a cultural, you know, question, question, whatever. And it's kind of we're at a kind of place where we can do both things. So you know I mean? again, we're at a
1: place we could do, but we do
11: both in terms of the question of socialism or communism, uh-huh. and the question of um, cultural revolution, whatever. Yeah, you know, now yeah, yeah. did set up a good condition, but I, I'm trying to work that the uh, cultural revolution was, was a time period. I think that, you know we have to think about the infiltration. You remember Gorbachev? Think the infiltration. You remember Gorbachev? Yeah. You know what I mean. But I think. Um, no, I I think, mean, this is I really
1: think, you, I think you're onto something, and
11: <sighs> I hate to bring up Trotsky, though. I would hate to bring him up. I would hate to bring him up. Well Don't bring him up. That's <laughs> why. <I> just, <laughs> like, that's <laughs> why I'm saying. That's why. see one. We see why? <laughs> okay. I hate <laughs> to bring up, but you. sometimes you
7: have to bring up some
12: of
10: you know things that you don't no. necessarily like to do with it. I'll just
0: see that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me call on Jerry. I mean, I just I just want to build on what people are saying, which is um, I feel like
6: i oh, sorry, I lost
0: But um,
13: I can say something. Oh yeah, you should. Uh, I really <laughs> appreciated, you know, just hearing about the history of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. how there have been periodically these political and ideological shifts in keeping mm-hmm. with the time and yeah. in keeping with what the people needed and what they needed to do in order to. to people to be with the party and so on. But honestly, I think I'm starting to realize what you say about the death of the Democratic Party as it existed. And I think it was sort of clarified to me when RFK Jr., when I heard that he was going to leave, because in, in his interviews, in his early interviews after he declared that he's going to run for president, it was almost like he was holding out hope that that, that transformation that has always happened in periods of time within the Democratic Party, through the Civil War, to FDR, to the Kennedys, and so on, could happen again in our terms. He always held out hope and he said, I'm a Democrat. But so in my- yeah, also yeah. interesting.
1: A Democrat who wants to save the Democratic yeah. Party I, is leaving the Democratic and Party. And that's,
13: that's, to me, it's symbolic of the end. You know, It's almost like you cannot hope for a renewal anymore. Yeah. Um, but the Republican Party question is not
0: close yeah. <laughs> I, I remember what I was going to say. Oh, um, yeah, a few of us went with one um, with Emily to the Labor Day parade where where Biden spoke in Philadelphia a few weeks ago um, with like all of the unions and stuff oh, yeah, and yeah. it was a very interesting experience because there I mean yeah, there was a lot of people there when Biden spoke and as you can imagine there was like, Closer to the stage, there were people who were like genuinely excited to see Biden and were like cheering when he said certain things, even though they didn't make sense. But when you left that like core ring of people who were surrounding Biden and the stage, people were just standing there kind of like checking their phones. They looked really bored because also he talked for a really long time and he kind of rambled for a lot of it. But I think that, I mean, that's part of the question too, like that you raised about the labor factions within the democratic party the labor movement itself and yeah i just feel like like it it's kind of uh more i don't know if passive is the right word but yeah like it does bring to mind this question of like what is the people's non-cooperation with the democratic party what does that look like is it just a like i feel like the most immediate form of it is just people turning away like not voting the way that we've talked about with the Philadelphia election, but can that become something that's even greater than just people not voting? Like, can that be turned into, like, energy towards a, like, building a movement? Um, And I don't know, I feel like that is part of the question, because I think, like, I don't know, part of how I try to understand things as well is, like, what are the actual, like, you know, in the way that Henry Winston talks about you know, like the future will ter- determine its own tactics, but what, what is the actual demand now? Like what is the actual like pressing demand of struggle for this time? And I feel like, it, in, I don't know, the way that I understand it is like not like revolution overnight, like not like sweeping the ruling class off the stage of history, like none of that stuff. But it's more that I feel like part of what the people are looking for and part of what the democratic demand is, is basically something that manifests in Trump, something that manifests in RFK Jr. in a slightly different way, but it is essentially like the people expressing one, their anger, but also like expressing that we are like, we are the ones who will decide like what the future is. Like however that make it manifest, but it also gets to the heart of the question of ideology, which is that, as you guys were saying, Trump, like whether or not he directly challenged the ideology of the ruling class, it's I feel like it's more that, he put on the table that the ruling class could be challenged ideologically and that the people should be, that the people themselves are responsible for doing that. And I feel like, I, I don't know, like I, I think there's many ways of formulating like what are the democratic demands at this time? Yeah. Um, but I think part of the question is, is like ideology itself. Do the, Do the American people feel that they are capable of actually coming up with a clear ideological challenge, like a new ideology to counter the ruling elite because, the, because it is so pervasive that the ideology of the ruling class has become so bankrupt and no one believes in it anymore. But are the, do the people feel themselves capable of actually saying, like, no, we're capable of coming up with an alternative ourselves? And I feel like basically, like, Trump is a, manifest, a vehicle for that. Like, RK Jr. is a vehicle for that. The election itself is a way that that can take shape. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of the question of like, it's not just an election, it's something much greater Mm -hmm. and it's in service, it's in service of something that's created, but you have to deal with like, what is the actual democratic demand for this moment, Mm -hmm. um, without trying to be like, oh, like, are we ready? Like, are we ready for like revolution yet? When it's like, no, like revolution happens when, if you like, when you're actually like going through the actual process of, yeah, like the democratic demands of the people passing through stages, um. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of like, well, yeah, like, listen, let me
10: I would have uh, I would like to answer this, absolutely. I um, mean, that, that's how I viewed even like the ascendancy of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the New Deal guy, F, an FDR, uh, and even I guess what the, the civil rights legislation, like, that was not the goodwill uh, exclusively of uh, the Democratic Party or any particular party. That was the, Democratic demands of the people that a certain leadership was able to respond to, direct, and enact, uh, and so, and I mean that's how I completely view Trump as well. Trump, you know, a, a strong, courageous man, nonetheless, but he is uh, really pulling from and able to uh, do what he does because uh, the American people uh, support him, and. Uh, uh, I mean, I think that's the the difference of between, uh, I guess, what you call the pacification of the American people, which mm-hmm. I think definitely has happened before, uh, especially, I guess, in Europe. You know, they were cool with uh, maintaining the colonial structure and just receiving a little bit of benefits. But uh, with the Trump movement itself, and I think with the American people, I feel that they are calling into question the very fabric of society that they live in, the world that they live in. And want to orient themselves differently i don't think that they're simply uh comfortable with a, what you might call like a welfare state where you receive a little bit more of the benefits uh of the ruling elite that they have appropriated for themselves like in previous uh i guess the european epoch after the, uh, the world wars i think they want to pull out of uh wars obviously because they view that it doesn't benefit them dir- uh, directly like they might have thought it was but I think it is calling into question the uh, way that they're, they're oriented, the society that they live in. Um, so uh, I think that it uh, especially uh, puts the, uh, I, as you said, Jeremiah, the, the ideological uh, struggle, and I guess the, uh, yeah, the ideological struggle uh, in a principal position for the American people to uh, make the step of not just we are, we, are un- we don't accept what currently exists right now. Uh, and to be able to have the most well thought out uh, alternative.
0: Um, this,
9: this, college, you know, I agree with Eddie about you know people don't want a welfare state, especially the Trump movement.
1: Well, what do you mean, people don't want a welfare state? I, mean, I think. What that, I mean, you said they don't want a welfare state. Well, what what do you mean by a welfare state? I think that
9: Americans are. Uh, Andrew Yang proposed that idea of a freedom dividend, and we'll give you the money so you can yeah. go about your life. But I think the American people, and this speaks to what was said earlier about, uh, you know, uh, what did what Jeremiah said about working through the people's democratic demands. I don't think people want an easier lifestyle. I think that they want, and have said very clearly, that they want
1: jobs. Yes. And um, but that see that's not in country. Addiction to the welfare state, what we call the welfare state. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the government living up to the contract with the people. Yeah. I mean, it exactly. took on the name of the welfare state, but it's more than that. What the people are demanding, and this, and I would say we have to distinguish between the immediate and the medium period. The immediate is to defeat. The war administration, mm-hmm. they have to be defeated. The administration of war, of inflation, and declining standards of living of the American people. I don't care how they try to massage it. That is the first thing, defeat them. Um, and then, then we're going to be in a different stage, hopefully, this time next year. But I'm sorry, I don't mean to... Direction. No, I mean, I think it's,
9: uh, I appreciate this discussion because we're going through the nuances of what are the people thinking, what are the people, yeah. the voices, the yeah. voiceless, you know, who have uh, formed, uh, who have formed coalitions, groups of uh, organizations, uh, you know, churches, fraternal organizations, mm-hmm. um, Union unions.
1: Um, you
9: thought <laughs> i sorry. No, keep it, keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have a lot of contempt for, uh, you know, the the left. Who I'm thinking about. Uh, the reason I'm thinking about this is all the factions we talked about. The factions, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, mm-hmm. and uh, then the factions that um, you know misled essentially Cornell West or um, the factions uh, you know in, around Cornell West. And um, the the left is there's sort of like uh, a dog on a leash that's barking, but as soon as the leash is dropped, they don't do anything, and uh, they only start barking when their their masters take the leash again. And um, they need to be yeah. There's a lot of you know there's a lot of bite uh, bark from uh, leftists, but when it comes down to this all these new possibilities that we're talking about, you know, what is the future gonna look like? They have a very narrow view of what, what could be, or they're not talking like the way we're talking about the nuances of what what do the people really want.
1: And um but the but what is called the left doesn't give a damn about <laughs> the people. They have no relationship with the people, they have issues, for instance, uh Cop city, yeah, at this time in Philadelphia. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like spitting in the faces of the poor, mm-hmm.
9: well, yeah, yeah. of the, you know, uh, 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 me. Come, here. Come here, man. But um, I think that we have a lot of uh, the you know Max Max Blumenthal fought with uh, Ben Norton on the internet, and th- that's that's where this contempt for the left is coming. All these different factions; it's become a it's become a popularity contest, and uh, these people don't really these people the left does not really care care about the people like Doc said, and um, but also you know what you said about Bill Clinton. Um, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, there's no need for all these bones. And uh, the people surrounding Cornell West, they should know this. They're old enough to have lived through it. We all
1: know what Clinton yeah, was Yeah, but about. see, here is the rub. That's what I'm saying, if I might. just for it. That poll, that Washington Post, ABC yeah. poll, changed the political dynamic where the ruling elite, you could say maybe they overreacted, but they said this poll shows that this situation is an existential threat to us as a class and to each of us individually. So in these universities, which are part of the system of rule, these elite universities where Cornell is insinuated in, they went, I could see them. I could tell, I could almost give you names and addresses maybe cell phone numbers, Mm -hmm. who said to him, in effect, "Hey Cornell, you don't want to ruin your reputation. You understand what I'm saying? You don't want to ruin your reputation and your whatever you got by being the one who brings, who who reelects Trump. And they would say, Oh, of course, we all know he's a fascist. So you're going to be uh, uh, branded as the one who gave us fascism the way um, Nader was branded with, Well, you gave us uh, George Bush. And Jill Stein. And, and, and Jill Stein gave us Trump, all that kind of bullshit. And he did not have the courage. Now, when the ruling class pushes up on you, through its intelligence services and everything, that's a whole nother thing. You know, we're gonna smear you. You know, we got we got some shit. You got some baggage. That I don't think you want to be known. Maybe you don't have no baggage. You understand? You know, they'll make some. We'll make it up.
2: Yeah, it will. you don't have to have anything. Yeah, you don't
1: have to. <laughs> and see, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, pressure. You've operated as a, quote, free black man. So you operated on your own. So you can do whatever and say whatever you want to say. Because I'm a free black man, quote, unquote. But ain't nobody that free. Ain't no black man that free. So you ain't all that free. And so the ruling class going to show you how free you really are. Because, I mean, it is, and I don't underestimate. And, you know, I say, hey, man. I feel your pain. But once you jumped out on that stage of history, this ain't no uh, tiptoe through the tulips. It's a serious business and it's class struggle. And the pressure was too much, man. He had to he had to back out. I, I mean, I'm saying, you know, the ruling class don't play. But I just wanted to say- I'm sorry. I,
9: no, I, I, it's all related. Uh, it's, it's important to, Divide these to make clear these lines between uh, you know me personally and the contempt I have uh, for the left, and I think that's why I feel uh, oh you know the politics. My politics has turned at least the way it has because uh, you know Max Blumenthal uh, was uh, was hashing out his his disagreements with Ben Norton publicly, you know, for the first time in over a <laughs> year. And um, you know Ben, Ben Norton basically robbed his bank account, uh, saying like, "Oh well, it's because you support the truckers' convoy," and um, it's just like, I don't well, know.
1: "Please explain a little bit more." Ben Norton, ben
9: Norton and Max Blumenthal yeah. and Aaron Mate all used to be uh, coworkers, mm-hmm. and uh, Ben Norton uh, abruptly left. And uh, it wasn't really known why, but probably they had a disagreement. And then, you know, recently, uh, they uh, Max Blumenthal came out and said, you know, this is how much money that uh, Ben Norton owes me, and uh, this is all the illegal, <laughs> and you know, all this other drama came out essentially. And it was an eye, it was a, it was a lens into the, you know, the podcast left, the online left. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh it's just disappointing you know there's
1: this is no, not a game as you said, not really not really it's not good. it's expected if everything is about you and about how yeah, well you know I'm like this I'll say this to me if that's the way you want it to be and to be about you, then let it continue to be about you. Let's see how far that gets you that's you know you, i i don't, I don't think. I'm not as, uh, I'm forgiving, but I'm a little more clear-eyed about the game they play. This whole YouTube podcast game uh, and hits and all that. (laughs) Okay, Uh, you you know what I'm saying. If that's you, do you. I'm sorry. (laughs)
9: No, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, from this conversation, how how I feel about the left, and I feel that a lot of people who have uh, rejected I and mean, the different terms. I think Danny likes the PMC left, and Caleb likes the PMC. We left. Left. like the term, <laughs> yeah. the term
1: the PMC uh, left. So what is the PMC left? Professional managerial class left.
9: Caleb Moppen has the the synthetic left, yeah, and uh, there are all these. We're trying. Uh, I'm I'm wondering, you know, what's the direction of of this this left? And no, that,
1: I would say a small bit of advice: let them go. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But that's what I think. Let them go. That's what I think. Uh, this, this Max
9: Blumenfeld did, yeah, did.
1: Yeah, yeah. But we have the Saturday free school, right? I think, and when Avant Garde comes out, yeah. I don't know. Who is going to want to read Jacobin?
4: <laughs>
1: if they're not ideas, fresh ideas. So we're here in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is not unimportant. Gritty, poor, fifth largest city in the country. What black people do here will decide who wins Pennsylvania in the upcoming. So let's keep doing what we do. That's all I'm saying. And and let them do, I I, I have, emo, I, I think emotionally we're a little bit at a different stage of this. Emotionally, even though there are young people and others that I love on that side, you know, I see where I have to go. I know what I stand for. I love Cornell West, but I'm not going to follow you down this uh, fool's errand, mm-hmm. you know, and some, I, hey, look, money, I mean, I'm not at a great university, but I know you talk to me. Let's talk. Let's talk. You know, like Ronnie Dyson. Can we talk? <laughs> yeah, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Let them go, man. Let them go. It's nothing there. That's what it is. It is hollow, barren. You know, the Ben Nortons and, and of the world. And Caleb Moppin. Mm-hmm. You know, dog, get yourself together. You got to learn to listen. You know, know, I'm talking to you. Look, if at this late date, you haven't read Black Reconstruction in America, I don't know what we talk about. I mean, where where do we go? How do we, you know, because the terms of discussion are so different. I mean, that's the way I feel. Are you, are you telling me mm-hmm, what you mean? I
9: think that's why uh, the university leftists yeah. see an existential threat for America and Europe as a negative. And, and that's what the left is trying to do. That's what Cornell is trying to do, is save democracy. Yeah. And we in the free school, I think that's what makes things really clear for me. We in the free school see an existential left America and Europe is a, a beautiful thing for That's the right. dark that's right. and
1: to save democracy you have to defeat the ruling elite of this country. The only way, that's the Frederick Douglass strategy. Somebody has to lose if there's to be democracy. We can't all there can't be, you know, a kumbaya moment where I get together with Hillary and and them, and they get together with me, and we, you know, march down the street defeating Trump. No, I'm not going to take that position. And um, no, I, yeah, that's absurd. Right. Maybe we have some, uh, some comments, and then we'll turn to uh, Sarah.
5: Yeah, um, Shantu, Todd, Don Debar, Christopher Romero, and Jahan say good morning. Jahan also says nice haircut, dog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, I think a lot of the comments kind of floated into our discussion, even though we didn't read them yet. So Don argues for he thought that FDR's Democratic Party was not a workers' party, but actually the bourgeois Party that offered more relief to workers. Than the republicans did whereas the communist party was the actual actual workers mm-hmm. party and so he frames fdr as a bourgeois response to the prospect of a communist revolution um which i feel like emil also talked about with like russia and america and todd references the guardian morning headline which is that democratic unity strikes contrast to republican chaos as the <laughs> so yeah again the media spin
6: yeah.
5: um And, but then Don also said that it's a very interesting observation or thesis of comparing FDR and Clinton as like the sentinels of the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. um, like sort of bookmarking or benchmarking the Soviet period. Um, Leia says, this conversation is helping me understand why the internationalism of the current American left has none of the revolutionary energy of previous Mm -hmm. generations. Mm -hmm. She says, it seems like a method of ad hoc solidarity that mirrors this poly crisis framing, which defines how the left talks about the fundamental problems facing people today. And Don agreed yeah, it's the language of internationalism and solidarity with the program of global capital and alienation. People tended to understand the concepts as being identical with the terminology. So when the terms were redefined, like left, right, internationalism, um, they adopted the new concepts um, and never noticed. And so, then Layat says, yes, neoliberal internationalism will have you very confused, let me say. Um, Royce Adams, I don't know what this was in reference to, Royce. says um, his speech on the death of Leon Trotsky, but I don't know whose speech on the death of Trotsky.
1: Um, uh, is he talking about Royce?
5: Maybe? I don't
1: know. Do Tell Royce to Write a, a chat. Okay,
5: boys, if I'm you're sorry. still there, please clarify. <laughs> um, and then Leah also said that um, Jeremiah's anecdote about the poor showing at the Labor Day campaign mm-hmm. that Biden was at, says that it reminds her of the optics at the recent United Nations meeting where all these Western leaders gave their speeches to an effectively empty chamber <laughs> where people aren't listening because they know now that there's nothing there. Um, and that, and then Don says that Trotsky was a pioneer of this language game, where like you have terms, but then they don't actually correspond to the concepts. Where Trotsky tried to redefine Leninism from its real essence to something that enabled him to conspire with the House and
11: american Committee against you said the, the House American And when, what was the what did he say the House Un-American Committee mean? Because uh-huh. Paul Robeson that was the same uh, meeting that Paul Robeson mm-hmm. or not meeting, but same um, you know Try Robeson as well. You, know, you got to clarify.
6: Yeah.
5: yeah okay more clarification please yeah. um, and then let's see Christopher Romero says getting jobs would address material concerns but I wonder if the American people are questioning what ideas or ideologies would fill the vacuum if they directly oppose the ruling class ideology mm-hmm. and perhaps that's part of the anxiety or the uncertainty of this time which is that you might know that you oppose the ruling class but you're at least familiar with the ideology and that idea, mm-hmm. those ideas are familiar and so There is hope and anxiety for an unknown future and a question of what this new America would look like. Um, And then Don DeBar also says, non-union factory worker is a job and it might look good to some of the unemployed, but it represents a backward motion from even the mid
6: 1950s.
0: Um, Yeah, those are all. I just want to add to what uh, Christopher Romero was saying, because I'm not trying to like overly complicate, I guess like what's going to be happening with the election, but I think part of it is that with the broad agenda of defeating the warmongers as like the broad goal, I feel like there are things contained within it which have to be understood phenomena, but also contained within that, like things that can be achieved through the election that have to be clarified and understood. And I feel like part of what Christopher Romero is getting at is that like, it's like that the people in mounting this challenge to the war makers are challenging the ideology of the ruling elite. But part of, I feel like what can be achieved even with something like an election is an advance in terms of the people coming together and maybe not having everything figured out, but starting to define, no, what should be our ideology? What should be our ideas? And this is part of what I feel like the free school also does, which is we put the ideas on the table and say, these don't just belong. These are not just like a group of random group of people who happen to think this way, but like, we think that these ideas are the property of the people. They belong to the people. And it is a people's birthright to claim them as their own philosophy and visions of the future. And I feel like this is part of what can be achieved through an election in which you're trying to basically defeat, whether it's Biden or if they pluck like Gavin Newsom to replace Biden, something like that. I feel like the ultimate question is like, also that the question of war and peace places on the American people the question of their responsibility to themselves, but also to humanity. And I think this is partially like, like the way that I think about it is that like Harry Belafonte has this speech where he's honoring King and he says that what King was able to see, like more than any other leader, and this is what led to the civil rights movement is that black folk were ready for, they were not just angry against the system of segregation, but they were ready for the responsibilities that would come with mass action and civil disobedience and i feel like this is we're at a similar period today where like it's not just about the anger of the people but do we feel that people are ready for a new stage of responsibility and assuming the responsibility which is ultimately like the end vision i think is of yeah like the achievement of a new democracy but what that means is that the people would claim a new kind of responsibility for the future of the country and I feel like, yeah, like the question of war and peace is very central to that. But I'm I'm just trying to, I guess, clarify like when you have an election in which like it's very clear, like, yeah, like the future of Biden, like, but then what is contained within it and what can be achieved through it as a pathway to new stages of struggle where things actually advance and they're not just like like kind of cut short. Well, can I that. ask
1: you a question, Jerry? What about if we reconceptualize this? election as more than an election. Yeah, I yeah, he is. I <laughs> in other words, it is more of a referendum. And Trump has conceptualized it. You know, when he makes a statement, I forget, I am your retribution, yeah. which streetlights, like, I am your get back. Get back.
6: Right, right,
1: right, right. He <laughs> is tapped in to something that goes across party and race and even class at the lower level that is uh the the lower middle class and the small petty bourgeoisie small business people who feel they've been messed over i think this is something new now if it is that if it is a get back and if he is saying those people who are persecuting me when i get in office first of all I'm going to pardon all of the January 6th people that are in jail.
11: Right, right. Yeah, guys. Like... I mean, this,
1: <laughs> this is huge, hugely transgressive. What I'm going, yeah. I might even pardon Julian Assange. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm going to punish all of those who have come at us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not normal (laughs) in election. This is not a normal debate. This is literally a zero-sum game. The center has collapsed. The center will not hold. So there ain't no center to go to. You see, the the normal concept of bourgeois governance is that we compete the labor conservatives, the Democrats, or Republicans, yada, 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 and then after the election, we meet at the center. That's why they always call it the center right, the center left, the vital center, all of that type of thing. There is no center to go to. So now that's why they keep referring to it as a form of a quote, cold civil war. The sides are so dug in as to not allow for, quote, compromise. I don't see it. Not even on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Biden and them are committed in... See, people keep saying, oh, it's a, a split between the people who want to prioritize Russia as the enemy or, or make peace with Russia and those who who want to go after China. That's, no, 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 because the real deal is they see the Russia-China alliance as the, the foundation of the existential threat mm-hmm. around which mm-hmm. is BRICS, BRICS six, uh, G twenty, yada yada. You, you know what I'm saying? This, you know, you know, uh, uh, Cornell was talking about. I'm, I'm running and to become the president of Empire to destroy Empire. And, well, well, brother man. The movement, according to Richard Haas, according to Robert Gates, you read these people, they're saying the great threat to US empire is the domestic political instability. And they don't have to mention the left. The left ain't, quote unquote, ain't even in it. It abandoned the fight 35 years ago when it went over to identity politics. It don't count, it don't make a difference. You know, let them play in their sandboxes (laughs) and be the children they are. The children, they're not even adolescents. You know, let them go. People talking about war and peace, you talking about Cop City? Have you, I mean, let's go to Kensington. Cop, get the fuck out of (laughs) here. It is an insult to the intelligence of the people. It it is to be treated with utter contempt. I don't care whether you're 8 to 80. You, You engage in that kind of trivia, you know, F you. We have serious business to take care of, and the American people are increasingly taking care of their business. And that's the that's the beauty of this time. Yeah. Do you want okay. to go to Baltimore? Oh, we can go to Baltimore. Yeah, listen. Oh, go, go, go ahead, Brady, 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 <laughs> lights, okay. Mr. Lights. I, I just want to give you a. Huh. Um,
14: I'm old enough to be your dad. I'm yeah. 72. Oh, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that to get that stroke.
6: Yeah. Um, <laughs> really
14: so um, I'm coming home to um, my spiritual nieces and nephews. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like so it. it's good to be back. I was in the area and I I read the emails and um, my absence I uh, count that more to my head. Through my heart, and what I just said, I think, says that. Um, When I was here, Doc always uh, opined about my commenters, both appreciating them, yet, Doc is an ongoing (laughs) critique. And in the context of our very granular discussions of theology and ideas, and very complex dynamics that are going on in the freedom movement now.
6: Mm-hmm.
14: Talking sometimes sometimes apply. Oh, Grady, uh, I don't know, sometimes just poetic and philosophical so again, oh, that uh, we just, you know, but get with appreciation. so. Um, and not with that, I don't want to disappoint. I'm just going to make a few questions um, in regard to while I've been away, but with you in spirit. And what struck me about the invitation in this email, when I saw that you were uh, reverting to Baldwin and the approach, uh, how to approach his novels, and you were placing this uh, point of reference in what I know from Free School is always Doc's very um, Mm -hmm. maestro overview. It's That's very, true. and he, he, he goes through the grandiose, which then creates the context for what I just stepped into it, and Jake just sort of looked at me gradially. But I know, <laughs> the I know the know. <laughs> And the erudition and the precocity of, of your critique and your discussion. I look at the young faces and I look at the depth of what we're really getting at. And uh, I, I just am encouraged, I mean, our future, Is in good hands with all of what's going on. (laughs) So um, when I I thought about Baldwin as an artist, uh, as a
1: critic, who decimated the ruling class. Uh, Excuse me, Grady. Could we? Could you hold a point on Baldwin because Seraphina is going to open up on that right now. Okay. Okay. And then we come. Then after after, she's going to talk about Baldwin, the novelist. Okay. Because yeah, but could we do that and then we come right to you? Of course,
6: I'll send you this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um.
15: Yeah, because when we were talking this us um. Sunday um, when we were meeting for the year of Baldwin. Uh, I had mentioned the conversation that I had with uh, uh, Emily who started reading um, Baldwin's novels and she started with Giovanni Durham, um, which was I'm not, I don't remember what year it was written in.
6: Mm-hmm.
15: And, you know, when we started reading Baldwin, or actually to be honest, like I did come to free school when we did the celebration of Baldwin in 2017. Um, that matters less, it was more incidental. But what matters about it is that I think like I would tell Emily and everybody who I have a conversation with about this, is that you know the same thing to a lot of people. We've all been very close um, to me, mm-hmm. and so Emily asked me, ask you, "What should I read after uh, Giovanni's Room?" And I had to tell her, and like I said at the meeting this past Sunday. Um, It's more complicated than that. Um, And I think it's complicated because what happens when you're you're reading Baldwin is this uh, reality that you have to face, which is yourself when you're reading Baldwin. And uh, I think that's possibly with any good or great novelist or writer. Um, and I think novelists or essayists, the difference between the two matters in its specificity or meaning like what Baldwin is writing or pertain, or specifically writing about and how it affects you um, is probably different. But Baldwin, the writer, doesn't essentially change um, per, what he writes on, Um, so in response with Emily, I was like, I can't tell you what to read after Giovanni's room, because when you get to what you read after Giovanni's room, it will be probably what you're ready for. More than what, you know, is in the next stage or in the next, you know, what, like a, a essay or novel later. But what that also means is that um, when you're reading Baldwin, it's about what um, your understanding of your own, not your own, but humanity, really. And it does take a certain level of clarity and maturity when you are reading um, and understand uh yourself in what is being written by baldwin um and it's an interesting thing because i think over the past time of being with and learning from baldwin and others that i've become to see baldwin as a um as a person in a way Um, You know, because the whole thing about the artist is like, oh well, the artist is not a revolutionary, but the artist is not uh, uh, estranged
4: from ideas.
15: So how's the artist not a revolutionary? That's only if the artist doesn't take a position at all. So the artist has to be in. Essentially, its only position can be to uh, be a mirror to society, as Baldwin would say, or a revolutionary. Anyway, so you can't say that he's not by saying that he's an artist. Second of all, when studying his life has been a journey in of itself. You know, it makes me reflect about my own. And it makes me, um, so, and what I'm saying about that is that we learned about Baldwin in the context of the um, revolutionary struggle in the civil rights movement in the context of the world peace movement. And we have a better clarity of Baldwin in that light. What is the democratic struggle? Why In, in this country, what are the American people searching for? And um, so, again, back to the conversation with Emily, like, we, I said you can't really, I can't really tell you what you need to learn from following one when you read, or what the next thing you need to discover within yourself, basically. Um, Just read as much as possible. And uh, what she read next was train. And, that was in his later as later novels, and I remember that I had read it with Jake like two, one or two years ago, and we read the later novels like in all in one, one go, and it was interesting because um, the storylines kind of conflated. but what was so um, clarifying was the development, the philosophical achievements Baldwin was able to also see through the black Proletarian imaginary that he pinpointed um, was one way to explain the nature of the American essence due to the transatlantic slave trade and the effects upon the consciousness of the world people at large, meaning the depth Reality of empathy as a tool of operation and as something that gives to or leans toward another um, level or stage of humanity and human consciousness. Um, and I think the reason why. I'm Saying or talking about the novelist is because of the formulation about Baldwin as an essayist yes. and how you would know either Glennson Hughes or somebody had told you or something, him. Him that one of his greatest contributions was his essays. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. And I think that his essays are important. Um, but again, for the purpose of pedagogy, like, I think that anybody like Lotus is also doing, that we all will also do in the year Baldwin. It is a matter of, it is a it is a complicated matter about what to read yeah. in Baldwin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> meaning there really is no right way yeah. and there's no specific wrong way. But what needs to be um, emphasized is the synthesis of the revolutionary, the moral, the scientific, the, the sim- and how it plays out in the in the uh, in the fact that in this moment of transition, like we were also talking about, this referendum that you had mentioned, what are we revolving around? Like, what is a singular point?
4: Mm-hmm. Who
15: are we as human beings? Um, and what is this new world coming into being new for all of us? That is part of one of the singular questions to focus on when reading Baldwin in a pedagogical mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things of Baldwin that is quote unquote revolutionary, whether that be in the fire the next time or the price of the ticket. Um, or black uh, dishonest, or like the language, the English, you know, that mm-hmm. there's a lot of essays that are like propagandistic. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think that when picking out, which will actually be the case when we're reading it within our groups, when we're picking out sections, with that in this specific topic of the novels, um, what will happen is a discussion which will kind of turn into a, a subsequent reflection mm-hmm. about what um, a person is, what are they also becoming in the context of achieving a mutation that we also talk about, mm-hmm. which is di- a difficult maneuver because it's hard at first for people who are especially young Possibly, but then at the same time, it's almost that thing about the responsibility of the matter. That young people are also eager to take a certain responsibility. Mm-hmm. That the connection between the the individual to the rest of the world is almost necessary, but to make that connection mm-hmm. will be an important thing to do um, mm-hmm. as a group and when we're all reading it. And so, because Emily read through Giovanni's room, I started it. And then she talked about train all this last week, and oh, I was yeah. like, waiting. So sure. Should I read train? I yeah. started reading like.
14: Tell me how long Yeah, 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 train. yeah. yeah,
15: yeah. Um, sure. I, I I read like only a portion of train. It was like the first 200 pages of it, and uh, I it was like, I should have started earlier. But, <laughs> but, um. In in me and Emily's conversation, uh, the story of Train is about an actor um, from Harlem, uh, and how he. So you know his life. It's centered upon his life, and the story comes out of his life, basically. And so, the characters are one topic. And one way to think about the story. You know, if you were to discuss the story, would you be concerned more about the characters or are you concerned? So, in the conversation that me and Emily had, I also pre, pre, uh, assume that it's less about the character, categorical nature of the characters themselves, right, 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 right. In, yeah. the, in the fact that in this, uh, in the way that Baldwin is writing, which also presupposes a certain nature of the way human development is occurring in America, which is even if you're a white woman from Kentucky, which is one of the characters, the life that she takes in the story also Mm -hmm. um, has this um, lean to a certain level of this human quality of chance, like what you should do it's still, um, and so it's not solely about what she represents. More than what she's also becoming, it's more about what she's becoming. Um, and uh, so, like when you're taking, I think these stories, what becomes important is, like I said the acknowledgement of the world situation the acknowledgement that the depth of what Baldwin brings to life in his stories also brings out a certain depth in you and a certain understanding of it uh, and more so a responsibility to it um, which is really important today but that's all i say about that to be honest uh, I wanted to hear
1: about the Lotus group because I feel like it was important for them. This is very interesting. But well, go ahead, Grady. You wanted to. Yeah. Do you want to come in now? Or?
14: Yeah, let me just. Uh, I'll just. It may connect uh, with Jeffrey's um, <coughs> points of reference. Um. I was going to say something else, but then she brought in. Uh, the differentiation of Baldwin as a novelist and as an essayist. Yes. And um, I think if I just say this, I'll be briefer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been away for a while. But, you know, I do go on a bit. But um, the essay that I'll be speaking about that I think speaks to some of what you were saying and what I'm gathering at this whole late moment with the conversation is about. And it is called uh, The Price of the Ticket. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that actually, for me, remains salient, seminal, because what it does it is that, in my imagination, because I'm not studying Baldwin, it joins the Baldwin, the artist, with Baldwin, undoubtedly the Ironwalker, mm-hmm. and an art critique of the ruling class at a level of culture and aesthetics that. For lack of a better way of putting it, Michael said, "Beat us up." I mean, they loved him, and he was saying, "You're so hateworthy, but yet I don't hate you. He went on to say elsewhere that the oppressed plays a role in the liberation of the oppressor. So I mean, you're 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 engaging a, a discussion here, which is true to free school. I mean. Just what has said, and the fact that, in spite of the destination that is free school, you're in that mm. and you remain so, and you should be. Yes. So we're, so we're dealing with fundamentals, and we have a very, very real decision point. And um, to revert to Baldwin, just sort of really like Surfiness, there is no one answer. Yeah. But the context <laughs> in which you engage the
6: alternative,
14: when you Get into Baldwin, that process becomes a little bit more f- foreseeable. And there's just something about the electricity of his spirit and the existential authenticity of his being in the world and, and his sense of the world to be. And for that to come from a man of color, who one would expect to be biased? How can you be this way? How can you be, I mean, <coughs> He, he was at the height of the highest levels of intellectual and artistic culture right. in our country. Yeah. Publicly and then privately, you know, the people who were not ready to embrace him, they loved him. Okay. So, I mean, free school, This um, good being bad. That's <laughs> all <laughs> so I'm going to say.
6: You know, I always take away a lot, much more than I bring. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, this- yeah. That
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Serafina, last Sunday at our, organi- our meeting to organize for the Year Baldwin, <laughs> uh, talked about reading Baldwin's novels, yeah. and I had wished so much that we had recorded it. It was a brilliant formulation, and um, this um, thing of Baldwin, the novelist involved in the essay is just like Brady was talking. But if I could just, one thing that occurred to me after listening to you and then reflecting. Baldwin, the, the thread that unites all of his writing, but certainly his novels, is the struggle to love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To make the other you right well, and that is a struggle. And then, <laughs> as you put it, sort of <laughs> so contextualize yeah. in the context of the American reality. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not something removed from it. It is the struggle of the American people to yeah, realize themselves. The yeah. and that's not even is, so um, But then. He is not naive about human beings because there is also desire, and desire is not the same as love. I, I wrote something yeah. to Michelle. I talked about Baldwinian love, and I would—I I haven't explored it. I, I would hope that you and others would explore
4: Well,
1: um, because, no, because this is <laughs> something
4: that me
15: and Emily were texting back and forth about because. She was also saying, or like, you know, we were talking about the time that Baldwin is writing yes. in like,
7: yes. in the village or like, like whatever, whatever. Yeah, I and okay.
6: well, specifically village and the fact that like the bohemian. Yes. Um,
15: and I was like, you know, today, I think that, well, I think it's not solely like a bohemian thing of um, the way that people interacted. With one with one another in the way that you know, in the in the characters that not just well, but yes, the characters that um, Baldwin was describing. Because I would just think about how today we are not connected, we are less in a in a way. Yeah. And you know, this whole thing about love is messed up with marriage and like mm-hmm. partnership and like that kind of thing. But see, what you're also saying is. Mm-hmm. Like that. Well, what I was also saying about that time that Baldwin is also describing, and why that's important, is because it got cut off. Like the way we love each other as human beings, the way we love ourselves as human—it was like there's a weird manipulation, um, and that had to often in tandem with freedom struggle. You know what I mean? Like struggle to achieve a new
1: nation. Yeah. Can I just say something? these are good?
6: to just
15: say one I, uh, <laughs> 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 Say what you
1: think. Well, because, see, I think when I talk about Baldwinian love, it is not contained or constricted by gender, right. sexual preference, or any of this. That's why he will say that Giovanni's Woman is not a gay
6: novel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not at all. And if you <laughs> read it, it's not. It is an aspirational, yeah. imaginary, so to speak, uh, to achieve love. Mm-hmm. And to achieve love is to live with people in good faith.
15: In good faith. And part of that is the responsibility, mm-hmm. the acknowledgement of the responsibility.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Meaning,
15: like, oh, not even like a, I do this way and this, mm-hmm. but like the responsibility of your brothers and
1: sisters. Yeah. like
15: that level mm-hmm. of acknowledgement that actions have consequences. And can I I just say,
1: and desire. See, in this uh, conflation of desire and love, I mean, yes, desire, attraction, all of that, but this is not the essence of Baldwinian love. And and I think one of the things that he deals with quite interestingly is desire and love. Where love... Is this great human aspirational? And the last thing I'd say is that the principal category for Baldwin is not race, but humanity. Yeah. But I'll say
12: you just add,
5: yeah.
1: Have,
12: well, on the point about love, I would just add that I think for Baldwin, it's also it's also the touchstone for reality, and then also for freedom. Like, there's that mm-hmm. interview. I think in the meeting, the man documentary where Baldwin says, um, the interviewer says like, "Oh, but so many people have been in love, or, or haven't they?" Or something like that, and then he and then he immediately fires back and he says, "Well, have they? Because if they have, they seem to have forgotten it. Uh-huh. Like, were they loved growing up, or did when did they ever love when they were young?" But he's saying that there's a kernel there that if you hold on to it and you never betray it, like it can actually unlock your own humanity, like you can become free through that process. But it's just yeah.
15: I mean what becomes like weird about it is like really um the whole politics behind like the whether that be the feminism wave or identity politics and then it miscues the purpose which is connected to what we said in the tenth anniversary mm-hmm. and like what we're gonna be doing with LinkedIn like this it's it, the quality that we're saying is something different than what the feminists are saying. Yeah. Um and why that's important is because history is important. <laughs> yeah. And you can't be honest about a history period, like what you're saying. This is what you're saying. But, yeah. Yeah. Um without without being willing um to know how to love or whatever but these are you know it's like go within the air and see if it becomes fans, like abstract concept and it doesn't have
12: to be like that but it
15: feels like that and i don't wish it did
12: well could I, wish I say, it did. could I say something briefly about like the pedagogy to the pedagogical approach reading Baldwin and then also like mention this a little bit yes. Well, first I wanted to introduce Lando because he's been coming to the Baldwin Reading Group and <laughs> I think Nathan and, and told him about resources and how you So yeah, it's nice to see you. Hi,
6: everybody. Okay. How are
14: you doing? Uh,
12: yeah, but I think you're a, so- you're a sophomore at yeah. 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 Oh,
6: okay.
14: Where are you from? I'm from South Carolina. right Norman. home, right home. I'm,
1: I'm from a- South right? yeah. Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, my people are
11: here. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Agree a green word, doesn't it? Wow. Oh, okay. We can form a South Carolina caucus. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> okay,
12: but, but yeah, I, I really like the way, like I really like what you said, Seraphina, and then the way that you also began by really focusing about, yeah, basically, like the, the need for pedagogy mm-hmm. around Baldwin, especially this time, because, mm-hmm the past month of us reading Baldwin also summer, like all summer long, Mary and Barbara and I were meeting and discussing the ideas a lot and how we wanted to approach like this formation of a reading group. And I think something that we've really had to deal with is that the assumption is no longer that people are capable of taking Baldwin on Baldwin's terms. And it's so, for me, it's very like, how do you say it? It's, it's it's a really profound anomaly because actually like Seraphina said, Baldwin is one of the greats. Like Baldwin is one of the American greats but one of the world greats when it comes to writing. Like as a novelist, as an essayist, as an artist. And it's actually shocking that people can approach Baldwin independently with so much confusion and pull a message that is so much actually the exact opposite of what Baldwin was saying. And I think that just goes to show, of course, like, how much of an ideological attack there has been, a la like what everything said about feminism, or like people read Giovanni's room and their takeaways, to queerness, like not anything about humanity or anything about the struggle to love um, or to deal with American history. So, so I guess like that's really the main point I wanted to make is just this thing of how to reconcile and then restore or even achieve Baldwin on, on Baldwin's terms again. Um, and then of course for this historical moment because it's all there. It's it's just that the pathway back to those ideas has been smeared, it's smudged, it's been distorted. Um, because I think in the past like you know, a couple of years, I have met a lot of like, yeah, Nuriper and I also talked about this, but Baldwin has become a much more popular name than, for example, when I was an undergraduate student, I remember I was in a class where of like maybe 30 or 40 students, and this was at Penn. And the professor had introduced Baldwin to us for the first time. And he said, How many of you have heard of Baldwin? And and probably less than five people raised their hands. I don't think it would be the same today if he mm-hmm. taught that class right now. I think like at least half those hands would go up, or people would say, like, yeah, but well, my professor was actually shocked at the time. He was like, Why does no one know Baldwin? Mm-hmm. This is 2017 or 18. But um, but yeah, it's it's they know him, but from the way that people talk about what they get from reading Baldwin, it's it's not at all actually what we're talking about. So what i they say? Well, well, I think they have a really hard time linking it to the personal moral imperative. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a much harder time than they actually should seeing themselves or seeing that writing as a mirror, as a dagger almost. You know, something that can cure you and show you who you are, but also what you're capable, of, what you're responsible to, and what your history is. I mean, all of that is completely there in Baldwin because I really feel that he's a a blueprint in a lot of ways for the American past, like the American moment, and then the American future, and how to become a human being within all of it. But, yeah, but I think a lot of people who read Baldwin read him academically, which mm-hmm. means yeah. that it is divorced from any sense of like personal identity or personal responsibility. They would even like put him in the same category as yeah, just these black black thinkers. They're like revolutionary black thinkers. Like people will compare Baldwin to Tanaheese coats, right? Mm-hmm. Or like not be able to distinguish between the two of them. Mm-hmm. The fire next time and between the world and me. Like it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that. But I th- yeah, but well, maybe you guys might want to add something as well.
14: Can I ask a question? From um, so what you were saying about Baldwin, um, what would you say about Baldwin's earth being one that engages the tension between trauma in the broadest sense and redemption? Because once we meet in love, which implies an acknowledgement of truth, and then you were talking about finding the path forward, which is somewhat fuzzy. How do you reconstruct the world? And then the teaching prior to that, that has to go on. And for Baldwin to as powerfully engage the trauma and the egregious injustice of the ruling class and white people and whiteness. To the aesthetic extent and poetic that he did and for them to embrace that. But like you said, academically, and not understanding the personal transformation that Baldwin is proposing, that we envision or imagine, for whatever trauma you experience in this unjust world. His literature, his erva is a path to redeeming that. Yeah.
15: Well, I mean, like in this case for the year Baldwin, we had it settled that, this um, year would be done from the ground up. Um, meaning like, yes. what we're redeeming is the soul of America. Yes. Like under yes. your feet, not just, not, this won't be a top down scenario. And when we're talking about like whiteness, there's many a time where problem will be like, you know, white people, Aren't even white. They're like a, like a, a shade of red or
4: something
15: like that. <laughs> and what that also, yeah, you know what I mean. Like what that also means again, it comes back down to the principles of the matter. And that's why when we're going to be studying Baldwin alongside other people involved in our reading groups that we um, initiate. It'll be a situation where we're we're doing multiple things at once, and uh, we're teaching a worldview. And what that would also mean is that this whole thing about the personal is not solely in the individual, but is locked within the revolutionary responsibility of a moment. And we're teaching. Yeah,
14: personal. Personal is not individual. It,
15: the personal, because like when you read something personal and you want to be like, oh, you know, kind of lock it away and keep it. But what the personal really means in this case, when you're reading Baldwin, is locked with the responsibility yeah. of the the revolutionary responsibility of this moment. Yeah. Um, to explain that is, you know what I mean, another task, which is something that we can do. Yeah. And what that would also mean is that we're teaching Baldwin, we're teaching pain.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh,
15: meaning like, okay, so the worldview is one. Yeah. The historic situation that we're in is, is another. To explain it will be a maneuver it will be things that, you know, you can't explain it all at once to somebody, but to con- continue to connect to the principles at hand. Okay, well, what is white, what is black, where did it come from? Who is Du Bois? Who is King? What do the movements mean today? What is Trump? You know, like these explanations. But then also in response between you and the people that you're studying with, the students, if you will, and you as one as well, they will be questioned about this moment, what is, What of America, what of myself, like where do I fit, what does that matter? Like all of these things actually do matter. The experiences that one comes in with, that's what we're all being sensitized to in the process of reading with everybody that will come to the um, reading groups. So it is a very specific approach that is from developed from the people that in this case of Philadelphia, we will imbue with a desire to struggle for a new world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it matters a lot, I think, specifically now, in doing Baldwin.
6: um,
14: When we were speaking, I heard you say, uh, because something is personal, that doesn't mean it's individual. Yeah. And that's true. And and, and, that is true. When I was 14 in 1965, and my dad called us into the den, about crossing the color line to integrate the white public school system, well, he told us all people are created equal, but all white people are not the
11: same. As our son comes in and says, all people aren't created equal, but are created different. Just yes.
14: What, what he was telling us is that if you do not know the company you keep, that was what he followed up with. Right. And he said that listen. To each person, because if you don't make that differentiation, you are doing to us, you're doing to them what they are doing to yeah. us.
6: Yeah.
11: yeah that's and
14: Baldwin, Baldwin, I I read Baldwin when I read Giovanni's Room and the rest of it. Um, I read it through that lens, when he was talking about white people. I said, my dad made a similar differentiation, yeah. and I think that's at the root of Baldwin's sort of lens to which he looks at white people and whiteness." history. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's what I, I mean, just to respond yeah. briefly to what you are saying, though, <laughs>
15: is because, again, the reality of the present is very important, too. Yes, yeah, sure. Meaning, like, the... Sure ideological struggle is imperative to understand. Um, And specifically, where does this white power, white system, uh, like where is the power at the moment? You know what I mean? And like, for me, which also harkens back to what Michelle was saying about her undergrad experience, the universities are one of the domains that attack young people and their minds and their hearts right. and what that also means is that with the year Baldwin um, we're attacking back institutions that attack the people and want to replace um, history with a lie and uh, that's an emotional thing and that's something uh, specific and. I'm responding in that way because right in today's America, racism does not look like racism
6: in the 60s. Um, racism, racism and
15: um, war looks like an attack upon people who are poor, an attack on the hearts of people who are emotionally needing of water and food you know <laughs> what i mean like nourishment and um so that's kind of that's kind of what i
6: would say to that, I have let, me, let, me, that. let me let me yes. let me call the women let me call on yeah, yeah it's
2: yeah. real quick what, what kind of sort of came to my mind about that is uh you meet a person you understand a person a white person now i may have a initial you know impression but I have practiced uh, not getting away from or not listening at my intellect, but I've also uh, I've learned to listen at my, my intuition, which is a higher knowing. And uh, mm-hmm. okay. and then I'm also, I've, I've learned how to really, really understand uh, body language there's all kinds of things that people express that they don't know they're expressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, I don't know whether it was Shakespeare or whoever said, uh, uh, speak that I might see thee.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and when you open your mouth, and if you are, if you are practicing the art of listening, mm-hmm. you not only can hear what the person is saying, but you can also hear what they're not saying. Right. So. I have found myself having a totally different perception of a person when they opened their mouth and what I was able to hear and understanding what that meant and what it would actually mean for you to say that and and know what you're talking about. So uh, yeah, so I just want to add that in, and I was relating to you yeah, um, the um
11: I have like a too, two a two liner for it. Um, in the in the in the, so there was a struggle in the south, right? It was, it was a big problem. There was a big problem. A struggle. A struggle. There was a struggle in the south, mm-hmm. right? And it was a big problem, you know. So we had in the south uh, water fountains. black <laughs> and white. In the north, we didn't even have water <laughs> Get Okay, because we did not have any water pumps You know, for example. Just for example, in terms of, like, um, like it's just a, a joke about the contradiction, you know what I mean, in terms of different struggles. Like, the struggle was integration in the North. The struggle was, like, basic, like, uh, say material needs. Um, sorry, I put it in my head. South was the integration. Like, it was such a, the, the, what was the biggest problem, basically? And then after that, the, or and then the, the biggest problem sometimes in the, in the North was, you know, it's that point of uh, where there's state control you know what I mean? Um, there was deep state, and that's what we learned in Black Reconstruction. There was deep state regulation as to, let's say, labor period. You know, okay. Well, and then there was black codes, and then then Jim Crow. That's how that evolved, developed, they say. Um, but then in the North, there was just straight industrial um, dictatorship. Uh, I would say because, you know, it was, it was factory work. Uh, you know, factory, factory, factory. And, you know, if you didn't have work, and then there was a death sentence.
6: That's why it was trying when they started riding rails. And, you know,
11: that's something I mean, to look at, you know, in terms of you know, how do you tell the history? You know, it's like, God, yeah, you have to do a full history to kind of get uh, to the point or get to that, we case where are we?
1: You know what I mean? Um, but I think that. This is interesting. You. Because, you know, Baldwin did not know the South until he came back, and right. back after, right. right? And it was the march in Washington. You see,
11: you see, you can see your... you this is you know, very
1: interesting what you're saying, days. literally, uh, two societies, in a lot of ways, in one nation. Another country. So the absolutely, table two cities, absolutely, absolutely, you absolutely.
11: That absolutely. absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah, there was the you so much meaning yeah, yeah,
11: and it is, it is. it's a, another country. I mean, and that was just in the North. He wrote um uh take but uh, uh take man on the train's gone? He wrote that after. He wrote that during Huey's era. So that was like, or right, right at the rise and then the death of Malcolm and then ooh, whoa we got mad. At. Whoa, you know, it's not and that's when he wrote how you know to kind of cool it in sixty three. Like let's calm down for a second because it's going to be a little bit challenging, let's say. Um and so I think that uh it becomes ultimately, uh, it becomes a thing where, well, you know, it, 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 so let's take a step of breather and understand what certain next steps are in, in terms of things. Like, let's kind of take a second, second look around and say, what's going on? What is going on? You know, sometimes you, you can't get that necessarily by yourself. You know what I mean? Um, so, but you gotta try your best because, <laughs> well, not yeah, yourself, but you know, like when you talk to you know what I mean, um, but I think that you know I like that. it's a nice one-liner I think because um, I, I think uh, let's just break it down a little bit um, because it does it's, it's just you know we're outlaying a certain historical problem and you can look and say let's say we're at Vernon Park or let's say we're at um, uh, Clark Park same thing you know there's
3: uh,
11: no water <laughs> so you gotta go all the way back home wherever that is then you have and then when whoever is Dealing with it, you see the problem of gentrification easily, easily. Okay, so wherever home is, that's where they want you to kind of, you know, that's where, you know, in terms of economic segregation, then you get that, you know, question. And then that's, and then you're, you know, approaching that northern, the question of the northern problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. and so that's why I don't like like the confederation idea, because it would just turn into, you know, like, sorry, it's Russia, like, it would, you know, it would, it would turn into pre, which is good for them good for the um, uh, person who wants to you know completely change the um, the you know the imperial nature of, of of industry but it gets to a thing where you know you have to take a step back and slow down because it's you know it's like it's like in part two of Dark Princess. you know what I mean you know that anger right that anger is the same thing that there's you know because he was dealing with garbage at the time you know the end of the laCP like movement and it was like uh, and I think that a lot of those people that Du Bois met with were YCL or like in, or at YCL at the time, which is a different thing because that's the generation basically after, um, like after Marx. You know what I mean? So it's like, and he, and, and that was the whole German ideology. I don't know what you're gonna have to with me on, on this one, but but then, you know the whole you know the German ideology and that that the, the, the um let's say the the, the revolution. You know what I mean, um, and that's why it became such a clear connection with uh, Black Reconstruction. Far as I, you know, I was, you know, when, when I was with, when I was, you know, every. Let me let me call on
1: important. Yeah, very very important points. I yeah, I also
13: wanted to build on the conversation, and especially something that says you never see. Um, and in relation to things that have motivated us to think of what we should read in Lotus, where one thing is, you know what, like how Serafina is saying that Baldwin is not just Baldwin, Baldwin is also the tradition. And I guess this relates to the idea of the black holiday the imaginary. You cannot fully, like you cannot get all of Baldwin un- until and unless you also get a little, an understanding of that tradition that produces
6: yeah, them. Yeah. And
13: that includes, like I was saying, the boys and King and Robeson and Winston, and all of that. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges, especially with young people <clears> at <throat> universities um, for the year of Baldwin, because of the attack on this tradition. It has been. It has been so vicious yeah. that even when people want to engage with these ideas I agree that you can have a personal relationship with Paul, because he has so much moral authority; he reveals to you your personal and moral benefits. But he's also universal. It's not just the personal; it's a personal path to be universal in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, through him, you're connected to the rest of the world, and. I guess all of that depends on reading him the right way, mm-hmm. which is rooted in this, in the you know the moral authority of the black radical tradition. This is, I guess, one of the things that I find the most challenging in even thinking of which you know, in what, like this thing that Serafina was saying, how do you know what order to go in, like it, it sort of has to depend on where the room is at, like what the conversation is like and so on, but that always seems to me one of the like, you know, guiding principles in thinking about how you, we... and the other thing I wanted to say is very related to the conversation we had all day today is Baldwin's relation to America, you know, and how American he is and how even, you know, given all of the disappointments and the assassinations in
6: the 60s and
13: 70s, he never gives up his faith and his hope. In the capacity of the American people to ultimately transform themselves, and he even says, like, in it's in all of his essays, I think he touches upon it, where he's talking about how America is in a unique position, it has this unique capacity to even completely do away with the color line and yeah. you know, to become the last white right nation, right. and it's only America who can do that, and America can re- lead the world in this transformation, which is which is freedom. It's liberty, whatever you, know, whatever you want to call it, that's where it starts. And so these, and for next year, this is going to be very important because this responsibility that he feels to the country and the people and to the idea of achieving the American nation, he also puts on everybody who's reading what he has written through his essays and novels. When you read it, you're touched by that responsibility yourself. And I think it's going to be very significant next year, uh, with the year of Godwin, it's leading him throughout the city in high schools, um, obviously at Penn, but at other places also. But yeah, these are some of the things that we've been thinking about having started this already. Um,
5: yeah, I mean I feel like Shell and Project is basically all of my thoughts, but I feel like part of it is that Baldwin on his terms means like reading Baldwin on his own terms means that he offers categories, like actual categories of thinking. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing is that those categories are very distinct from the other categories that are offered to young people, which is like yeah, the lenses of identity politics or like um, catastrophe like things like that and instead like you get very principled categories which i think also matter and take on new life in these times but the pedagogy aspect is really interesting because it's not just like oh we're like reading baldwin to like figure out what themes or like what like words help up a lot or like yeah. to analyze language but it's actually it's learning how to think because reality is such a big part of it. It's like establishing what is my relationship to reality Mm -hmm. and how does that yeah, lead you to actually responsibility. And I think it's just very big. Like it's been, I guess an intense few weeks of trying to getting there and then basically just encountering, but there are also a few comments. Um, so, Vandemar had just clarified about Trotsky that Trotsky had claimed to be the true Arab Lenin and Stalin as the pretender, but it was in 1939 that he appeared before the DS committee, um, where he claimed to condemn, um, I guess, the committee while expressing his opposition
1: to the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. So Jesus, I didn't know that. He appeared before a U.S. senatorial committee. Yeah, the
5: House and American committee. And back in 39, yeah. In 39.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And then Layat just said, um i love serfina's point about asking what's the next thing you need to confront about yourself and feeling your way through baldwin's writing and i agree with michelle that baldwin today is read academically the way he's being used it reflects the way identity politics actively prevents people from using their personal suffering to achieve something human and Mm -hmm. universal Mm -hmm. and yeah
6: Mm -hmm. Good. 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 Good.
7: Yeah, I just wanted to agree with that and what you were saying, Corba, about the relationship between the particular and the universal yeah. involvement. I think that's true in his essays, but it might be even more true in his novels. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of something that we read in our Monday Viewing Group a long time ago, an interview with, with Lorraine Hansberry, maybe this is where you're it, but, but yeah, in it the interviewer is Bringing a critique that people had about her place that they were too specific, too particular. They were too Negro. That white you always write about black people. And her response is that only in the particular and in these very specific categories can I access the universe. And this reminds me so much of when Baldwin writes about. Your suffering is only as important as it can connect you to the suffering of all humans. Yeah. And, and in that, find some understanding and then some transformation of that yeah. suffering. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, that reading of the relationship between the particular and the universal is very important in, in reading Baldwin's novels. I think when Michelle talks about the students or that the feminist reading of Baldwin, Part of that may come from not mistaking the particularity of character. (laughs) And they're so obsessed with the character that they don't see, they move in the precise opposite direction that Baldwin moves, which is outward, the self expands outward to others. And for them, it it narrows inward to this particular character. What can I relate to in this, that that categories of identity instead of and right. and,
1: uh, very can so I ask you a question? did
7: Lorraine Hansberry uh, actually use the formulation of the particular I can send it the chat? Yeah, a uh, radio engineer. So, yeah.
14: <laughs> nice. I'd like to say something, talk about the comment of the two worlds or societies in America. A Quaker made this distinction between the North and the South, referencing what Jake was saying about the water fountains. <laughs> um he Put it this way, the South loves the people, but not the race. The North loves the race, but not the people. Okay, let me break that down. Um, We reintegrated (laughs) in 1965, first two years, Dicey rough. last two years, the former white supremacists and our black friends irritated our parents by breaking their rule and taking each other home, okay? If you crossed the color line, you were either an Uncle Tom or a nigger lover. Mm -hmm. Hence, and this has been throughout the history of the South, always recognition of black individuals. And that friendship, because of the cost, the price of that ticket of your bond has been because <laughs> you're nowhere. Your people hate you. There's no place to go. But if they need, that friendship is forever. And when you're talking about the collapse of the left, it's the Democratic Party. That collapse centers on this distinction that I'm making. Leftists, Democrats, you know deal. You know. They like the race, they don't like white people. And that's very equivocal, ambivalent. They won't join the labor movement. Nah, nah, nah. You're a little bit too close to the person, okay, to the people. But they'll work for an abstraction, mm-hmm. okay, an important book that came out a couple of years by Quakers. And amongst the white ruling class, Quakers are up there with the uh, imperator of the right wing. They they have a special cachet, okay? A a collaboration between a sister named Vanessa July and a a white female Quaker of high standing wrote a book called Fit for Freedom, but Not for Friendship. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that captured the whole dilemma that Quakers are dealing with, with what this other Quaker had said about the paradox. That's that's at the center of the less crisis. They, don't, they haven't yet crossed over to loving the people. They love the abstraction. Okay. Which is why that platform is often one of policies. Okay. Hillary Clinton land from resume. They are not projecting a vision of white and black life together as the good life. In the same sense that make America great again is coded language for that life of those
11: people. So that's what they made, see, but that's the problem. That's why Baldwin was so central. The problem with the whole thing is that both sides, whatever y'all, y'all, y'all messed, excuse me, y'all messed up when y'all said sides. And the mess up, that was the first ideological statement. The insight,
14: and Baldwin said this better, and he's really pointing to that problematic and that contradiction
6: yeah.
14: in the left, and their attitudes toward their press. <laughs>
12: It's
1: past two. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's past too. How do we end? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not I mean, cliffhanger. here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is, uh, well, it's. it's uh, conversation. Yeah. Well, this has been, as usual, very, very uh, rich and exciting. Uh, and it's so. So great to have Grady Lights back <laughs> it up with all of his wonderful insights. And uh, remember the poem, the Baldwin poem you read. How did I, it I, the hard I hard. forget that? staggering
14: <laughs> wonder. Oh, yeah. I, I read that at the Christmas party before COVID. Doctors, tap me to read it. And, he and never, um, I became possessed by Baldwin's spirit. Oh, yeah?
1: <laughs> he did, because he never read the poem. He i never really read the poem. Did. And he read it like he knew Baldwin and, and he knew the poem. It was. It, the
14: spirit in the party that I got there, and in my rearview mirror, mirror was all of the preaching sessions. And you know how I go. I'm not frustrated deeply by the demographics of this group and the discussion to see Asians and white and persons of color because white, and I've had an Asian but your age to I you better, you could be white. <laughs> but for you to be meeting bold and, and engaged with black thinkers as the, this is in itself a sign of the time and a disturbing sign for many people. Yeah.
1: Oh, it is a sign of- Oh it you is. You talk about the Quakers. We you know we're now among the uh universe universal univer- uh, Unitarian yeah, Universalists. Uh I, I think the uh Episcopalians became a little bit, a little tired of us, so we're here now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, people talk, and when I was then I was
14: surprised at the different places that people had heard it heard
1: you, the controversy of Temple, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, but great. afterwards you and I are gonna talk about how you see the preschool now, as opposed to when you left. I know it's a revelation, especially your girl, Seraphina. <laughs> Seraphina
14: sort of summed it up for me. Um, I thought there was a level of ideological purism that the free school might have been a part of because of the group that you say just didn't get it right. And I don't know what you just, the theme for this email, for this session, and what Sarah Frieden was saying about how Baldwin is at the gate for engaging and for being from the ground up, I don't think I can say that. That there's this purism because everything that was said here is about well, Seraphine is in it. That's it. I'll write it down and cite you uh, for something to be personal, which doesn't mean that it's individual, and you're sidestepping responsibility to the collective. So I would say that has changed.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, I'll turn it back over to my. Worthy colleague, Jeremiah. <laughs> <to> <laughs>
0: um, just uh, thanks to everyone for participating today, both in person, on live stream. We have one last comment from Layat uh, Betra, who said, um, deeply grateful for all the contributors to, um, I think, Vishwabandu and bringing the revolutionary philosophy of Tilak and Iqbal to bear upon world humanity's current historical juncture." Um, so yeah, thanks to and everyone who comment for today. Um, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.